Hey everybody, this is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio, broadcasting worldwide. This is our show for July 31st, Sunday, 2016, and really glad that you're with us. Thank you. We know that your time is really valuable and appreciate your spending some of it with us. This is going to be a pretty heavy-duty show, and, you know, I, I really, <clears throat> excuse me, I really went back and forth about whether to get into this or not, but... I uh, figure you guys are pretty brave and you would like to know whatever is true and anything that's important and related to your health you want to get the real information on and that's kind of how I feel and the other thing is when I'm talking to you about stuff that's pretty intense I'm talking to myself too because I'm just really a beginner learning about all these things like all of you are and if you remember back on June I think it was June 19th uh, we had a show with uh, Dr. Bill Warner, and it was a show on Islam, and you might think offhand that, oh, why do you want to have a religion show? You're supposed to be a health broadcast. And the reason was because um, certain followers of Islam that are being some, you know, pretty intense activity on in the name of their religion are becoming a major issue in the world right now. Um, just flooding all over Western Europe and beginning to come into in larger numbers into the U.S. with the help of uh, our actually our, our Wahhabi Muslim president who wears a ring identifying himself as such and has you know been in Muslim garb and speaks good Arabic and has a lot of reasons that he's just obviously a member of the whole movement and is bringing in illegal aliens, not just Muslims, but many other people, uh, a lot of drug dealers across the Mexican border that he calls widows and orphans. And there's some intense stuff going on. And if you follow the political correct way of dealing with this, <clears throat> excuse me, then you're basically supposed to not talk about it. Or if you do, then, as I said, it's widows and orphans wanting our compassion and we have to not be, um, you know, racist by complaining about immigration, which, of course, makes absolutely no sense. But if you see all of the authoritarian, you know, I mean, authoritative-looking news anchors and everybody in the Obama and a, as a really nice guy with his sleeves rolled up just right and everything and the right um, expression on his face saying that we just have to be kind and America stands for compassion – all of which is true, but has nothing to do with what's going on right now. And the, you know, big uh, violence movement in the Middle East is a result of the arming and training and direction of the U.S. and NATO. And then they're complaining about because of this, you know, it's a great excuse to take away what little freedoms remain and the ones that they have in mind to squash in the near future. So it turns out that these people doing massive violence all over the Middle East, uh, notably blowing up all kinds of ancient, um, you know, artifacts and buildings from the ancient past that are priceless and especially attacking uh, Christian churches and uh, beheading Christians and throwing homosexuals, or if you want to be use the correct political term, gay people, 
you know, homosexual is not a derogatory term. It's just a biological term. And they, those people are, are hated and they have to be killed by these, you know, supposedly radical followers of Islam. So they throw them off the roofs of buildings and everything. And, and this is what the U.S. government and NATO has been promoting, funding, arming, and training, and telling the military, who are made up of lots of great people, many of whom are friends of mine, to go ahead and, and support this terrorist movement. So, for most normal Americans, whether they're Muslims or Christians or anything else, that's just their belief system. They're all human beings, and most of them being, you know, having at least some connection to their human side, can't even imagine that the U.S. government, which once was supposed to be there to protect our freedoms, is actually doing any of this criminal activity on a massive scale. And its main camouflage is the fact that it's so horrible that most people can't imagine it could be true. So you're told it's a conspiracy theory that the U.S. government would ever support this kind of stuff. And they make fun of you for even bringing it up. And now it's gone beyond making fun of people. Anybody who's actually criticizing what has become this massive invasion of Western Europe and starting in the U.S., they're calling for them to be arrested. So on this program, you know, what we're about here, we don't have, we're not against anybody. We're not hating people. We're not even hating the globalists that Alex Jones talks about so eloquently and informatively. We don't hate them. We don't hate anybody. Because the real spiritual teachers, regardless of religion or time of origin in history or where geographically they were or when they ever wrote anything, they all talk about universal, unconditional love for everybody. And they warn us against hating anyone. And so obviously our rulers jump on that and twist it around and use it as a way to get us to hate each other and fight between all these different groups. And right now they've got what they call radical Muslims, although you're not allowed to say that anymore, uh, cutting off people's heads and throwing people off roofs and killing especially a lot of Christians and other groups like that. And they scream you know, Allah Akbar and things that make it pretty hard to mistake their motive. They're doing it for their religious beliefs. So, when when I saw this happening and I understood that the rulers of our country and, and the global power structure are using this to further their own agenda, which I can tell you from decades of my own study, not memorizing anybody's point of view, because I don't have any group to defend or attack. I just want to know what's true. And then that's really not good enough, because knowing what's true, if it's really bad news, that, that leaves you what? Angry, frustrated, depressed, and not having any idea what to do. And that is not useful. It, it might actually be better to not even know than to know and have nothing to do in response. So, the response I'd like us to have is to find out, really see clearly the first step, which is what's going on and what does it mean and where did it come from, where's it going. And and you don't have to hate anybody for that. All you have to do is understand what's going on. You know, our president is and the power structure behind him, he's not the boss, by the way. 
he just really enjoys being part of it because he, he's totally in favor of what's going on and he's willing to lie to, to promote it. But he's not the one who thinks up all these policies. So when you see really violent people bringing in not just massive amounts of drugs, but coming in here, setting up training camps, which Alex Jones's people have gone and visited. It's not a theory. It's not my opinion or theirs. These people are on video, and the police don't go in there anymore because it's too dangerous. And these are what's called radical Muslim training camps in the U.S. and all over Europe. There's no question that they're already there preparing for their next stages of massive attacks. And now there are attacks almost every day all over what used to be Europe. And it's these, what they, before they stopped talking about it, they were calling it radical Muslim terrorists. And they're killing people all over the place. And they're, no, they're not just killing people with guns. Okay, so forget about the idea that banning guns, which is a really stupid suicidal idea, of people who don't understand how that works. That banning guns would slow these guys down because they're doing their attacks with knives, with trucks, you know, with clubs, with bare hands, with whatever they can get their hands on. They don't care about the gun. They care about the crime. Okay, so by the time the anti-gun, gun banning people figure this out, it's going to be way too late. They're going to say, oh, hey, I guess it wasn't the guns. And by the way, that where they're committing these crimes, like in Sweden, where the Muslims come in and rape thousands of women, and that the government then says it's the fault of the Swedish women. Do you know, notice anything wrong with that picture at all? They're t saying that the Swedish people should apologize, and that there's nothing wrong with the fact that they're all disarmed. So the only people that have the weapons are the invading criminals and the government. But the government's not saving any of these guys, any of the victims, any of the women. If they cared about their population, they would arm all the women, teach them self-defense, and the Muslim attacks would stop right now. But before that, they should close the borders, obviously. I mean, how brilliant do you have to do to figure that out? Do you have to be to figure that out? Not very brilliant. But they've got us so dumbed down just defending whatever our group is supposed to be, you know, our group right or wrong, which is really a suicidal way to think. If you're going to defend your country, whether it's right or wrong, or your religion, or your group, or your gang, you're just going to help with the overall plan of destruction. And at the top levels of power in this country, that is the plan. I'll simplify it for you. Enslavement followed by extermination. And the rest is details. And I'm really sorry to be, have to be blunt and unpleasant. I hope you're not all just figuring that, you know, this is all things you do. I mean, it's your choice if you don't want to hear it. But I have one commitment, and that is to tell you the truth, not for the sake of the truth, but for the sake of what we can do with it to stop the planned future suffering that I do not want to see happen. That's it. That's the whole plan of this Lost Arts project. That's the reason for the Lost Arts Research Institute. That's the reason for the radio show. I did not want to do it. Doug had no plans to do it. He was just offering, you know, to be an incredible helping factor to make it all possible. After I was advertising on uh, Russ Tanner's 
Facebook page, which has now 65,000 or some people on it. And it was obviously meant to happen. Doug was the only single one that responded to my ad and turned out to be beyond perfect, doing things to support the show that I could never do. So all of this came together for a reason. And my motive in doing it once I realized I had to, because my preference was never to be visible to anybody. I just wanted to continue the work I was doing. But once I realized I had to, and all these great guests started coming in before we had any listeners and said, please let us be in your show. I mean, that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. But that's what happened. So even I had to realize that it looked like it was supposed to go forward. And once we did, then the point was, what can we do to make some kind of contribution to not having the future that our globalist rulers want to bring us and are working very diligently to accomplish, what could we do to make that change to, for the better? And that's the only reason that I bring up anything unpleasant because it, it's not pleasant for me either. But that's why we have talked about splitting your attention, keeping the emotional part locked on to whatever is beautiful for you, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist or anything. You've got something that inspires you. And that beauty is what you leave your emotions on. And it's just yours. It's not anybody else's choice of what to connect to, but it's yours. And don't let it go. And, and that's the only way that you're going to keep your sanity and your inner balance and your insight and your wisdom having to deal with all this ridiculous, horrible, violent nonsense, that your government is the one originating. So that's what we're doing. And if, you know, I talk about you should do that, so I have to do it too. Otherwise, I'm just another hypocritical supposed teacher. And I don't want to waste my time being that. So I'm trying to give you something useful. And, and when Dr. Bill Warner was on... Um, he made me realize I know nothing about Islam. And before I invited him, because he's not a Muslim, remember, I'm sure you realize that if you heard the, the show on the 19th of June, which you should go back and listen to for the introduction. Um, I asked Muslims to come on and talk about it, and these were great people. I have friends who are spectacular individuals who are Muslim, and I get treated like family, and they're just fantastic and I was amazed to find out a they don't know most of them don't know the full details of what Muhammad and Allah taught for the basis of Islam and the ones that do know they don't follow it but they don't want to come on and talk about it publicly because they were too scared what are they scared of that you know some unnamed you know violent people coming in getting mad at them, no. They're afraid of the authorities within their own religious power structure. Because the rule is in Islam, and we went over this, I think, a little bit on the 19th of June, that if you say anything that hurts the reputation or the image of the religion, even if it's true, then that's unacceptable. You should probably be killed, but at least you're going to go to hell. And, you know, there's a good chance you get killed. So they didn't really feel like doing that. And I agree that having your head attached to your body is a really big health advantage. 
So um, I understood why they didn't want to come on. And I looked around and Dr. Bill Warner came up as an expert who was really willing to talk honestly. And But he wasn't just talking. He wasn't complaining. He certainly didn't hate Muslims. He, had, he was a university professor. He had Muslims in his class, a lot of whom really appreciated the work he did. And he wrote a bunch of books. And the reason he wrote those books was that um, there are three major Muslim scriptures. The Quran, which is the only one most of the non-Muslims hear about. And then there's the Sirah, which is Muhammad's life, which is really important because there's more from him in the Quran than there is direct from Allah. And as Dr. Warner explains, and then the third one is called the Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H, and that means the traditions of Muhammad or, you know, basically every detail about how he lived his life because you're supposed to live your life the same way if you're going to be a good Muslim. And I realized I didn't know anything about what was in these other two scriptures which are critical for the whole understanding. And I really didn't understand the Quran that I read. I did read the Quran, but I didn't understand it. And I got confirmed from Dr. Warner that a lot of Muslims who try to read it don't understand it. And there's a reason for that. It's not because they're not intelligent. It's because the Quran, the chapters in the Quran, first of all, the Quran that was given to Muhammad. And by the way, I totally believe that Muhammad, that Muhammad did have this encounter with the angel that gave him the Quran and all the instructions of what to do and what to tell everybody else to do. I don't doubt that for a minute, so I guess I'm, I'm a believer in that way. But, but the angel that Muhammad met, um, at first he was just explaining how everybody else, well, you're going to hear about this when we talk to Dr. Warner because we're going to talk about it, but at first he was just talking about how all of the followers of other religions were all wrong and Islam was the only one that was right. But then he transitioned later, and we'll talk about this with Dr. Warner because I want to get into detail. But he talked about how really the only good thing to do with the people who won't convert to Islam is kill them. Except some of them you can kind of make either slaves or what they call dimmies, and we're going to have Dr. Warner explain that as well. So this was a non, in my opinion, and you just, you know, have your own opinion of it, but. As a non-Muslim, I actually believe that he did have an encounter with this non-physical being. It was probably very impressive, and um, who didn't identify himself, but a friend or relative of Muhammad's clarified who he thought he was later, and that's where they started calling him Gabriel. And um, Muhammad changed, and we're going to go through that change. And he started carrying out the orders from the angel from Allah. That of all the people that have to be killed, and that's a lot of people. Up to now, as we talked about last month, probably 270 million murdered in the, for, so that Allah and uh, Muhammad would be, be followed correctly. So this is real serious stuff. And as a Muslim, you need to understand it thoroughly. As a non-Muslim, you really need to understand it thoroughly. I don't agree with animosity between those two groups at all. I do believe in self-defense. If somebody starts screaming Allah Akbar and wants to kill you or your family or anybody else, then it's totally, you know, really your duty, in my opinion, if you have the means to try to prevent that murder any way that you can. But 
other than that, even if you have to do that, I don't believe in animosity between these groups because the ones that are doing the killing and even the ones in the religion who aren't doing the killing, it's not their fault. They're totally under the belief that you either do this or go to hell or get killed yourself. And before you criticize them for doing that, you better think about what you would do in that exact situation if you were being told by your belief system since birth that you do this or you go to hell or you die. So stop in the uh, just condemnation of the other group, whether you're a Muslim or a non-Muslim, and realize we're all in situations that make our lives very challenging and potentially really difficult and can even make you feel like you're forced into committing actions you wouldn't normally do as a good person. So let's understand instead of criticizing. And I'm talking to Muslims, and I'm talking to non-Muslims, talking to everybody. Forget the fighting, it's really dumb. Let's start by understanding, because the fate of the whole world is at stake. So, you know, what we see in history recently that brings this up is that um, basically the U.S. Was, was following a proposal that was outlined in the PNAC documents and many other places of destabilizing the whole Middle East. And, you know, they did, the U.S. government, not the U.S., but the U.S. government that's been hijacked by a cartel of criminals was doing all this stuff to ruin the countries in the Middle East and put them in the hands of governments that were vicious and uh, bloodthirsty. And they're still doing that. And the latest victim that they were trying to do it to was Assad, who was the elected leader of Syria, who had a, a secular government where the different religions were living in peace with each other for a long time. It wasn't um, a theocracy under Assad. And so it had to be destroyed. So uh, the U.S. government and NATO were revving up this uh, force of terrorists to go in there and you know, overthrow the legitimately elected government and kill as many people, especially Christians and homosexuals and a few other groups that they possibly could in the process. And they found these people that loved murder, mass murder. And it turned out that they were doing it for an ideology. So the question was, are they radicals? Are they just, you know, they just like murder so much they twist the religion? Or are they following what it really has to say? Or what what's going on? So... Uh, Assad apparently got pretty worried about what was going on in his country, didn't want to be thrown out or have the country destroyed like the U.S. government did to Libya for various interesting reasons, uh, putting it in the hands of killers when they were done. And so he asked Russia, who was showing signs of sanity via Putin, to please come in and fight, get rid of the terrorists. And uh, Putin said okay, and he sent aircraft in and he started actually bombing uh, al-Qaeda uh, truck caravans and things like that that Obama had pretended to do but never did and gave them warnings to please go away because we're going to blow up one truck or something. Uh, Putin came in and immediately started wiping out whole convoys. So this was really irritating to NATO and the U.S. government that wanted to destroy Syria next on their list of countries in the Middle East to destroy. So they went to, I guess, what might have been Plan B. And they took all of these uh, violent invaders and sent them towards Western Europe where they could be promoted as uh, poor refugees from the terrible Assad government and the vicious Russians, neither one of which was had any truth to it. 
and they started overrunning all of Europe by the millions and all they wanted to do was rape and kill and steal and the you know things that they said they were doing for their belief system so we want to talk to Dr. Warner about what kind of crazy thing is it that they're doing is this related to real Islam are they radicals or what's going on and so this is this this is the mass illegal immigration going on in Western Europe and starting to really get revved up in the US and in the US it's added to illegal immigration across the Mexican border and that's not a racist issue to be against that I mean we've got film on video of major drug transactions coming in across the border and the Border Patrol is ordered to put a lot of the illegal aliens on buses with paid vouchers to go anywhere in the country they want and come back in three years or something for a, an honor system court appointment when they don't even know what their real name is. So what do you think that's about? You think that's a really good system, you know, to have compassion for widows and orphans. Most of those people are military-age men coming from all different countries through Mexico. Mexico's not going to take them. It's not going to allow illegal immigration at all. You know, you go to prison and get tortured and die if you try it in Mexico. But they'll let you come through Mexico to get here because it's being promoted all over South America and elsewhere. So what's going on is these people are coming in. They're bringing massive amounts of drugs through Mexico. And they're setting up no-go police areas where the police just leave them alone and sometimes protect them. And they're setting up training camps for starting to blow up cities. And they're revving up the attacks here in in what used to be Europe they're about once a day now and in the US they're ramping up and the BBC recently has started changing the names of the attackers so that they won't they change the Muslim name like Ali to David and they're saying anybody that calls it Muslim immigration is going to you know potentially go to prison and they even arrested the leader of one of the political parties in France for criticizing immigration so it's pretty intense issue um, government is um, promoting it, government is behind it, government is funding it. They're now using taxpayer money uh, within the U.S. to uh, help the immigrants, uh, the immigrants, the invaders. Um, so anyway, I wanted Dr. Warner to come on and, and um, do something better as far as explanation goes instead of my non-existent knowledge about Islam. Tell us what's really going on. He had actually done the massive work of correlating all of the chapters of the Quran, which are all out of um, chronological order, so you really can't follow the sequence of them. They're just arranged longest to shortest, arbitrarily. And so it skips all over the timeline, and it's virtually impossible to follow that. So he took it all apart, arranged it, by chronological order along with Muhammad's life so that you can see how the Quran evolved uh, during the two periods of Muhammad's life, which three periods, which we'll talk about with him in a minute. And it's amazing what Dr. Warner has done. I would recommend it. Everybody get his books. Go to politicalislam.com. I think it's .com. Look up Political Islam in a search engine. And I've read, read most of his books now. And it's amazing. I didn't know anything before. And it's very clear um, what Islam is about, what it, you know, not the really great people that I know who have been born into it right now or who joined with partial information, but the original teachings, literal verbatim teachings of Muhammad and Allah in these three scriptures are totally clear. It's not an opinion, it's not 
a prejudice against a religion. It has nothing to do with that kind of stuff. This is what it was. And bear in mind one more thing, and then we'll go talk to Dr. Warner, is that it was all by oral tradition. In other words, it wasn't all written down until, I don't know, maybe 150 years after Muhammad died. So the accuracy of it is really questionable because it's hard to remember an exact conversation from 150 years ago, right? Just try it if you're not sure. And, um, but that's a side issue almost because the, the written version that got uh, accepted as the Quran, the Sira, and the Hadith, Sira and the Hadith are what everyone follows in that belief system. So it's really secondary whether they're completely accurate or not. They're assumed to be totally accurate. Uh, Muhammad's life is the perfect Muslim that you have to follow if you're going to be a Muslim, a good Muslim. And um, so this is critical background for understanding. It has nothing to do with being against Muslims. This is, that would be a ridiculous infantile level response. Muslim, that could be you. If it's an, it, it, maybe it is you if you're listening to this and you are a Muslim. You need to know what those initial belief systems that were written down actually were in detail. And if you're not a member of the Muslim belief system, you need to understand it anyway and realize, yes, that could be you very easily. If you were born into that and taught it from birth, you'd have the exact experience that the more than a billion people born into that religion have now, and you'd have the issues to deal with that they have. So let's get that foundational understanding from Dr. Warner, and then we need to come back and talk about it a little bit, because there's, there's going to be some really heavy-duty questions that come up as a result. So pay close attention, listen to it more than once if you have to on the archive, and then try to hang around after the broadcast, because we've got some really important stuff to go over. Okay, welcome everybody. This is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. We're broadcasting worldwide on the show for July 31st, 2016, already into the second half of the year. First half went by in about 10 minutes, and I expect the second half to do something similar. It's really amazing as time is speeding up here, and events are speeding up, and, and this is uh, the first official installment in a a series that Dr. Bill Warner has graciously agreed to do with us. We'll see how many installments are required to give kind of a complete picture. But a after his last guest appearance at Lost Arts, I, I felt like that was so valuable given the events in the world that are unfolding right now um, that I really wanted to make it a more complete educational event and since then, I've, I've t and that was the last show that you might want to listen to the archive on. That was on six nineteen of this year, June nineteenth. And uh, since then, I've actually talked to some Muslim friends, um, and I have friends that are, are great people, Muslims, and they make me feel like part of their family. It's really incredible, and they certainly don't identify with what's being done in the name of Islam right now. And most of them are actually surprised and haven't read the details in their own three sacred books, and certainly most non-Muslim Americans I don't think have either. We'll see if Dr. Warner agrees with that. And so I, I find myself in agreement with the evil power structure on this that I really do believe that uh, education in what Islam is should be available to everyone in, in mainstream America, not 
in the sense of just assuming that it's something that you're going to agree with or disagree with, but in what it really is. And that's why there, there's such great value in Dr. Warner being w- willing to share the time with us. So thank you, Dr. Warner, for being here. I'm really looking forward to this, and uh, I think it's going to be a, an interesting discussion for sure. Well, thanks for inviting me. Sure. So um, my thought, if it's okay with you, is that, you know, I have to say, first of all, uh, Dr. Warner has a website that everybody should go to called Center for, I'm sorry, for politicalislam.com, just www.politicalislam.com. And there you can see a bunch of books that he's authored and that I've been reading steadily since our last discussion because I realized how little I knew about this critically important subject, and I, I can't really have the best discussion to make use of Dr. Warner's time without knowing more about it. Um, so I've been doing that in the order that he suggested, and I found it uh, logical and, and very helpful in getting an overall understanding to start with the details of the life of Muhammad, who is, other than Allah, is the, seems to be the, Allah, he seems to be the most uh, central figure in Islam, and um, tell me if that makes sense to you, Dr. Warner, and if so, let's start out uh, as early as we can in, in Muhammad's life and start giving, letting people feel the reality of this person and, and what his life was like. Well, Muhammad's importance is, is found in the Quran, and that is there are 91 verses which state that Muhammad is the perfect human being that in order to go to paradise, you need to do exactly as he did. And the amazing thing about it is how much we know about Muhammad. We know his bathroom habits. We know how he ate, how he drank a glass of water. Uh, and all of this has been recorded in order that Muslims may imitate his life and with their life. Mm-hmm. So he is enormously important. Uh, if we took the Quran, the Sirah, his biography, and the Hadith, his traditions laid them on a table, it'd be very obvious that Allah's words are quite small in comparison to Muhammad's words. Matter of fact, there are about, for every word about, by Allah, there's eight more by Muhammad. Okay. So the bulk of the details of a, of a Muslim's life are found in Muhammad's life, not Allah. Okay, yeah, really interesting. So um, if we go back in his life as far as we can, uh, what's the earliest? What are the earliest things that we know about it? Well, we can divide his life up into three parts: the before he was a prophet part, being a prophet in Mecca, and then as being a prophet in Medina. Now, the earlier parts are interesting, but they're not critical. Uh, we found that he was was an orphan, mm-hmm. and he uh, was an orphan three different times. His mother died, then his father died, and then I think. The grandfather who adopted him, or an uncle, died as well. So he was three times an orphan. Okay. He was from what we could call a shabby, genteel family. That is, his family was part of the power structure of Mecca. And by the way, I've just revealed the fact that he was grew up in Mecca. Okay. But he was not a prosperous man himself. So All right. Well, also, I, I want to interject the question there that you, you said he was mm-hmm. part of the power structure of Mecca. I don't think... I could be wrong, but I don't think most people really have a clear picture of the political setup of Arabia at that time. Was was Mecca like an independent city or part of a larger uh, political entity, or how was that set up? We've asked a fascinating question. 
there was really no united power structure in, in uh, Arabia when Muhammad grew up in, in Mecca. That is, no one got to vote in an out town outside of Mecca about anything. It was a tribal structure, and uh, I never thought about it too much until you asked the question, but each city pretty much independently ran its own business. Okay, so it wasn't like the people in Mecca belonged to a country, right? Like we belong nope. to America or Russia or something like no, that. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, they, they saw themselves as tribal units, not national units. Now, Muhammad, when he died, by the time he died, was going to take care of this and present to the world a unified Arabia. Okay. This time it was all tribal. Tribal. Okay, so that was really a revolutionary concept uh, of of actually making a country out of the whole place, um, and we're talking. Well, no one else had previously tried. Uh, at least not there, and, and so and, and this was in the six hundreds that we're talking about, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So sorry for the interruption, but you were oh, just, just getting an introduction. A, a teacher never minds interruptions. Okay. Good. <laughs> so. Um, uh, you, you were just saying the few things that we knew about him before he became a prophet um, in his, his pre-prophet life, before he had his uh, encounter with uh, the angel that came to him and all that. It was just, right. he, he was involved in private business, right? He was involved in private business. Uh, he, is, he learned the skill of being a caravan trader because you, people went from southern Arabia to Syria to deliver goods and buy goods. Okay, and so he that he he learned the skill of being a caravan trader, and worked for a woman whose name was Khadija. Okay, and she proposed marriage to him. She had already been married, and I, I recall had two or three kids, but I don't don't write that down. But that's vaguely correct. Okay, and uh, and they were had a happy marriage, and Khadija, his wife, was to play a very important part in his becoming the prophet of Allah, because she was basically his first convert. Okay. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Right. Uh, before he became a prophet, he was a caravan trader and a prosperous one. There's also a story told that shows a quite, uh, how he developed in his personality. Before he became the prophet of Allah, he was a man who brought harmony to others. There's an example of, there was a, the town of Mecca had always been a religious pilgrimage center. People would come there to the Kaaba, which was a large stone cube building, and they would, this had been going on for some time, and there were five other towns in southern Arabia that also had Kaabas, cubic buildings, that were um, not migration centers, uh, not, um, um, a pilgrim, pilgrimage sites. Okay. People okay. would all come there at certain times of the year, and there would be trade fairs, people would meet and talk, and then there were 360 gods, it is said, in the Kaaba. And, you, uh, and let me make sure I understand what you just said, that within Mecca there were different pilgrimage sites? Is that what you're saying? There was only one. Okay. It accommodated some 360 religions. Okay, okay, sorry, I got it. So the Meccans, along with all the other Arabians at the time Muhammad is born, were what are called pagans or polytheists. Okay. Now, they decided that the, the building, the Kaaba, was getting shabby, and so they tore it down and rebuilt it. Now, there was a special stone that was in this building, which we call the Black Stone today. Mm-hmm. And there was an argument over who got to put it in the structure, because it was literally, this Black Stone was encased in the structure of the Kaaba. Okay. So, there was an argument over who should do it, and Muhammad came along, and they said, can you settle the argument? He says, well, let's do this. So, he put the Black Stone in the middle of a sheet, 
and had the men who were arguing over who got to put it in place take a corner of the sheet and place it into the position it should be in. So everybody got to touch the stone and put it in the proper place. Okay. So in this way, he, was, he brought harmony to those who argued. Okay. This was wow. a change after he became a prophet. That is really interesting because already you've, you've mentioned a couple of different great qualities that he had personally. Uh, and the reason I say that is because to, if I understand anything about running a caravan, that's a, that's a really high responsibility job that requires a lot of courage and management skill, right? It does. Like getting attacked does. by robbers and all kinds of stuff. Well, you had, to have, you had to have security, and let's not forget, when you got to Syria, you had to make a good deal on that end. Right. So he was a businessman. So he knew. And by the way, let's, let's examine a thing here. It is said that Muhammad was illiterate, but if he was a caravan leader, a caravan trader, it seems unlikely that he was completely illiterate, because he would need the ability to compute numbers, to even decide whether the profit margins were good enough to work with. Right. And also, it seems odd that he wouldn't have an ability to keep simple lists of products and their cost. It also so, sounds like you're describing somebody really intelligent, so the fact that he would decide not to gain literacy seems unlikely if he wanted to be good at trading. You know, you're the first person to bring up that argument, and I agree with you. So, okay. he was a man of curiosity. He was a man who uh, was obviously intelligent. And can we add this? He was a hard worker. Yeah. So yeah. all of these things uh, were what he brought, and in his 40s, he was a very religious man, and okay. in his 40s he began to do retreats. Hmm. Okay. And in these retreats, by the way, these were all customary in his society. Uh, his family, by the way, we need to say here, was involved in the business of religion, because if you have a religious center, the Kaaba, somebody's got to run it. Somebody's got to make sure things are repaired, kept in order. Uh, there's a key to the door because it mm -hmm. was a building. Okay. So they ran the business of pilgrimage. That's what his family was involved in. Okay. So for Muhammad to become a religious man is not extraordinary. Okay. I just we need to we need to give some perspective here. Okay. But in his 40s, he began to go on desert retreats, and it was on this time that he had a vision of uh, an angel coming to speak to him and saying that he was the messenger of Allah and he was going to bring him news and that it was Muhammad's job to take these revelations back to his people. Okay. Now, when he got this news, he was frightened because he thought he was crazy. Right. As a matter of fact, he even gave some contemplation to jumping off a cliff and killing himself. Okay. He thought he was crazy. So he was more of a conventional type person up to then that was so disturbed about being seen as somebody completely crazy that he didn't even want to live. Exactly. Nor did he want to tell anybody about this. Right. I mean, in this point, I can identify with him. Yeah. If I start having voices talk to me and tell me that I'm to run humanity's business, I'm not going to come out of my bedroom door and tell you that. Right. Because it's so preposterous. So, but anyway, when he went and he told his wife, Khadija, mm -hmm. she said, you're, you're a good man, you're not an evil man, this is something good. And so she went and got her cousin, I'm speaking off the top of my head, as I recall, his name was Waraka. Okay. And let me say something here. I'm known to mispronounce all these words in their Arabic. I've had more than one Muslim look at me and kind of laugh when I would pronounce Yeah, them. you're not trying to be insulting to anybody. You're just... No, 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 no. You may not be an expert was, in Arabic, I guess, right? 
Oh, <laughs> I plead guilty to that charge, I'll okay. tell you that. All right. And I'm told even that not only did I mispronounce them, but I mispronounced them with a rather southern accent. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah. I can read them on the page. Yeah. By the way, uh, this is the history of my life. I grew up in a very backwards part of uh, rural Tennessee, mm-hmm. and so I was self-educated in many items. And when I went off to college, I would have people look at me sometimes and go, what did you say? Right. I and they go, oh, you, what you mean is this. Okay, so you I didn't even have the better. right rural dialect at that point. No. <laughs> <laughs> I later found out that other people, such as Harry Truman and, and Abraham Lincoln, had the same problems. They were self-educated. So I'm in good company when I mispronounce words. Okay, so Mohammed but, decided not to kill himself because of the angel, and you decided not to give up because of the dialect. So Exactly. That's great. <laughs> and it sounds so far that, that Mohammed... Sounds like a really neat person. I mean, uh, from from no, everything. No, 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 no one had any complaints about it. Yeah, He's a businessman, hardworking. Um, so, she brought in her cousin Waraka, who had been exposed to Christianity, and he listened to Muhammad. And he says, "Ah, this angel is the angel Archangel Gabriel, and you are a prophet of God." Okay, so wait so, a minute. Who? So the, it was the cousin that figured out the name of the angel, or was it Muhammad? Uh, it was the cousin of. Khadija, who figured out the name, he told him, he says, this is an archangel, Okay, you have been selected to be a prophet. You know, I so think that's a crazy. really super interesting point, because I had thought before that the angel said, hi, I'm Gabriel, and this is what you, you have to do, but that's not what happened, according to what you just no. now said. No, no, the angel did not give a business card in the terms okay. of announcing the name. Very interesting, because I, I don't have any doubt, based on, you know... What you've described as Muhammad's personality, the fact that he didn't go looking for this kind of position or revelation. No. I think, no, I think I, it really happened. And, I mean, I, wasn't, well, I don't remember being there, but, but it sounds really sincere <laughs> to me. And, and I, yes. I, I don't have any doubt that this kind of being, super non-physical being does exist. It, it's just uh, one that his cousin gave a name to, but, but the angel just came and said, this is your job. Right. And so he would, went and he, he would go back on these retreats. There were, there were periods of time when there was... Oh, by the way, he only told his wife and, as I recall, some close friends like Ali, okay. who's a cousin of his. Okay. He told very few people. Because, like I say, well, I mean, put yourself in his shoes. All of a sudden, God is telling you how to run the world. I mean, that's, that's not something you want to come out and tell your friends about because they're going to look at you like... Hmm, what's wrong with you? Which, which adds credibility to the fact that, A, it really happened, and, and he wasn't making anything up. It, it was real. To him, it was real. Yep. And, and by the way, let me, let me say here, this is my intellectual point of view. I have my own personal doubts about the story. I, however, for the purpose of teaching about Islam, accept the, quote, we put this in air quotes, or scare quotes, the truth of the story. I accept the Quran as being what he says it is, I accept his life for being what he says it is, and I accept the traditions which are reported as being what they say they are. Mm-hmm. Now okay. I can put on another hat and challenge all of those assumptions. Okay. In this discussion, I'm going to be speaking to you as though I were a Muslim in the sense of what I'm doing is telling you what the doctrine says. Yeah. And I do not attempt to vilify it, nor do I attempt to mock it, nor I, I just tell the story as I read it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was the turning point of his life, for sure, the way it's oh, yes. described. Okay. Yes. 
All right. Now he's going to have a second turning point. Okay. But this is the, this is the first big turning point. All right. Now he began to as he got more and more revelations, and there was also a time when the revelations ceased, and he was concerned about that, like what, why, why aren't I hearing more things? Uh-huh. But he continued to hear revelations, and he would report what it was said to him. Okay. Now some of these revelations were rather short. I say this because his first revelations, if you pick up a Quran, his first revelations are in the back of the book, not the front of the book. But we'll deal more with this later. Okay. But his first revelations were short and frequently poetic. As a matter of fact, some of the most beautiful parts of the Quran in terms of the language are the earliest revelations. And because they were short, those ended up at the back of the Quran as it is now. Well, let's... We're not going to get off into the weeds here, but okay, the, yeah, when you so. buy a Quran and look at it, the, it is arranged in order of the length of the chapters, not in the order of their revelation, but in the length of, the, in other words, the Surah 2, the cow, is the longest uh, Surah chapter, and mm-hmm. so it's in the front. And then as you go on, and finally you'll get to the very back of the book where it's like Surah 110, and it maybe is only four sentences long. Okay, okay, okay. So, All right, so you said he reported them. Who, who was he reporting them to? Well, at first, friends and family. Okay. And later he began to report them to everybody. All and right. we can see in his development of his life that this whole coming out, if you will, mm-hmm. we could say coming out of the closet as being a prophet. Okay. And so, uh, now, he began to, not only did he get words, the angel began to show him how to do prayers okay. and how to do ablutions, which is purifications before you pray. Okay. So not only was he hearing words, he was also seeing how to do things. Okay. And uh, the rituals that he evolved were a combination of what the archangel told him as well as adapting uh, motifs that were already in Mecca. Okay. Remember, there were many religions there. Right, right. Okay. So he, uh, he became a prophet. Now something began to change as he went out into the public. At first he just brought in a religion. And what, remember there were already 360 religions in Mecca, so the Meccans said, fine, we now have 361, you're doing prayers at the Kaaba, fine, whatever, we don't care, or that's wonderful. That is, they were very neutral about it. Then his revelations began to change. It turned out now not only did he have a way to live, but all other ways were wrong. And those who did, he preached not only a gospel of salvation, but also a, go- a condemnation in terms of his was the only true way to do it. And that, was a, ter- now, that uh, was a change from what he was given originally, right? Yes. Okay. At first he just said, I have good news, as it were. Then okay. later he began to say, you're doing it wrong. Okay, okay, got it. And at this point, now, he also announced that those who did not follow his way were going to burn in hell. Right. He then told the Meccans that since their ancestors didn't follow his way, they were going to burn in hell, too. Okay. Well, this upset many of the Arabs because when you look at an Arab's name, many times it seems like a very long name, but what it's saying is son of, son of, son of. Mm-hmm. That is, it's, an, it's a genealogy. The name is a genealogy. For instance... Muhammad's name was Muhammad bin Abdullah. Muhammad, son of Abdullah. That was his father. Okay. So now then they were announcing that they were burning in hell. Well, this was like bad news to the Meccans, 
who are like, wait a minute, we all of a sudden, we don't like what you're saying. So then the arguments became contentious, and there was grumbling and mumbling and fights that came about in arguments. But he still continued to grow in terms of his followers, but he was now becoming a factor in the life of the Meccans that was uncomfortable. And so there were not only individual fights, but there were also fights of leadership in which they said, one of the things that happened was they said, okay, nobody do any more business with Muhammad and his followers. Don't know marriage. Don't do business with them. That is, they tried the business of shunning mm-hmm. and isolation in order to get him managed. Right. However, the arguments continued and after 10, let's see, 13 years of being in Mecca, it finally got to the point where they said, we want you to leave, because the contentiousness got worse and worse. Okay. So he left. Now, luckily, what he had done was he had made, Muhammad was a very clever, practical, adaptive man. Mm-hmm. No matter what happened, he had an answer to it. Okay. And so since the heat was coming on in Mecca, he then became acquainted with some people from a nearby town called Medina, and he converted them to Islam. Now, how did he meet these people? Well, every year, people came from all around for the trade fairs and religious festivals that were being held in Mecca. So, therefore, he was able to meet these people from Medina. They were, they were converts, and this was going to become very good news for him because he was going to be able to leave Mecca and have a place to go to, which is Medina. Okay. Now, let's do a summation of his life in Mecca. He preached the religion of Islam for 13 years and converted roughly 150 Arabs to Islam, about 10 a year. So he was not having an outrageous success, but he was successful. Okay. Now then, at that point, he now leaves and goes to Medina. Mm -hmm. This move is so important that the Islamic calendar is based upon this. We'll examine more why they did it this way. But this is slightly surprising that, he, that the Islamic calendar is based not on the birth of Muhammad, not on the night of the first revelation of the Quran, but on the time he moved from Mecca to Medina. Okay. And the reason for this is simple. He was going from a very weak success to a massive success. I mean, a very weak success to a very strong success. Okay. And so that's the reason for the Hajj or the Hijra being marking the beginning hijra's migration how do you spell that word well h-i-j-a-h i think hijra no r-a-h i guess not only do i mispronounce them i spell them even worse okay 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 but what it means what it means is the move from mecca to medina then right right okay now then after migration came success So I've just now told you something that's overwhelmingly important in terms of politics of Islam today. Mm -hmm. Migration was Muhammad's way of spreading Islam. Migration was the key to Muhammad's success. This is the reason the calendar begins with his hijra, his migration. Okay. If if we now come forward to the year 2016 we're living in, we're hearing troubles in Europe, and these are all by migrants. Mm-hmm. So this process of migration, which we see merely as economic, Muslims see it as religious and political and economic. So it's really it's reflecting. It's reflecting what happened when when he made the move to Medina. In other words, but let's go back to something I told you before. There are okay. ninety-one verses 
which say that every Muslim is to conduct their life on the basis of Muhammad's life as the perfect pattern. Okay. So if migration was in a part of his life, therefore a Muslim to become a migrant is nothing that's onerous or terrible. It is part of their view of how civilization works. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is, this is just something that we've gotten a little off in detail here, but I, it's, before we come back, when we come back and look at it, we'll see why this was so important. Okay, okay. So Muhammad moves to Mecca. I'm mean, sorry, from Mecca to Medina. And his first order of business when he gets to Medina is to build a mosque. Okay. His own building of worship. He also sat down. He was brought to. We need to let's talk a little bit about the town of Medina. We talked a little okay. bit about the town. Okay, Bef- before before you do, I I don't want to lose that. But but when he built that mosque, that was the first mosque that ever existed, right? Well, they claim that the first mosque was the Kaaba. The myth of the Kaaba is is that it was built by Abraham. Okay. And so, or I may be getting confused here. Maybe Adam built the first one, and Abraham reconstructed it, or something. Uh, okay. In other words, the, the story was that all of the the true religious buildings from the beginning were actually mosques. Yes. Okay. We're going to learn something here. All of the history is reinterpreted by Muhammad as a history of Islam, including the story of Abraham, okay. Isaac, and. Jesus. So all of these things are going to be reinterpreted in the view of Islam. And what he's going to do is, and he, let's go back to Mecca, because there's a, a nature of the Quran in Mecca which is very, very important. He became a prophet as a middle-aged man. Mm-hmm. He now had to explain who he was to people. Okay. So what he did was, he claimed to be the last of the, in the lineage of prophets that had appeared to the world, and in particular to the Jews. So, so that sounds like you're saying he was a Jewish prophet. He did not claim to be a Jew, but he claimed to be in the lineage of the Jewish prophets. Okay. Because this archangel was the same archangel who brought the messages of God to Moses, to David, to Solomon, so that all of the, he was a, he, the way I put it sometimes is Muhammad was the caboose on the train of prophets. Okay. He was the last prophet. Okay. But now then, see, he's explaining who he is. What he's saying to the Meccans is, I'm not such a freak. People have been, there have been people like me since the dawn of time, because Adam was the first prophet. Okay, 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 okay. And, my, and, and Abraham was the first prophet who, um, who dealt with one God, who was very clear about it being one God. Okay. Now then, the story of Abraham is told many times. The story of Moses is told 38 times. Here's what happened. The story of Moses is reinterpreted. The purpose of Moses is not to free the Jews. The purpose of Moses is to get the Pharaoh to declare that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his, and Moses is his prophet. Okay. So all of these stories were retold in the light of Moses was a Muslim serving Allah. So they were just using other words at the time, right? It was a it was understood that they didn't use the word Allah at that time, I assume. Well, no, they used the word Allah, because oh, Allah did. was the name for God. Remember, Muhammad's father's name was Abdullah, Abid Allah, 
slave or servant of Allah. Okay, but you said, I think if I remember from last time, you said Allah was, before Muhammad became a prophet, Allah was considered to be the moon god of the Arabs. Yes. Not under the moon god, but he was the chief god. Okay, he, but he but he was also the same as the god that Abraham was talking about and all of the other guys before him. Yes. Now, part of this... I'm a little weak on because we're now dealing pretty much with theology, which I have not specialized in. Okay. But we do need to understand that he was using himself <clears throat> as in the lineage of prophets known before. All right. Just as Moses, Abraham, uh, Adam, uh, David, and the others. Yeah, it was not another Adam. It was not a new lineage. It was just a continuation with more explanation. The explanation was is that when Allah sent a, what he retold all the stories to tell the story he needed was when Allah sends you a prophet you must believe him. Okay. Pharaoh was destroyed because he did not believe that okay. Moses slash Muhammad was a prophet. Okay, 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 okay. I got it. Now see, this is further and done in which Jesus is the prophet of Allah. Right. 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 Um, okay. All right. I got it. So anyway, so I'm just trying to explain to you, here's how he made himself acceptable to the Meccans, which is to say, I am part of a worldwide tradition. Allah has always sent prophets to humanity, and here's the lesson. When you reject your prophet, he will destroy you. Okay, so, okay, yeah. Pharaoh I mean, didn't accept Moses. It was supposed to get him acceptable to the Meccans, but it really didn't work do it, to do that. No, it didn't work too well. And by the way, the story of Noah is the same. No, the world was destroyed because they would not admit that Moses, no, I'm sorry, not Moses, Noah was the prophet of Allah. Got it. So he reworked all of the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament to the point where if you don't believe your prophet, you will suffer grave consequences. Not just going to hell, but your culture will be destroyed. Okay, okay. Got it. Well, interesting. So, he solved his problem on how to explain himself. And this, by the way, when you read the Quran, which is written in Mecca, and there's a Quran revealed in Mecca and a Quran revealed in Medina. Mm -hmm. But when you read the one in Mecca, it's over and over again, this story about if you don't believe your prophets, then you'll be destroyed. Well, now, there, but there's not two Qurans, right? I mean, I mean, that's just the first part of the Quran was written in Mecca and the second part in Medina. Is that right? Yes. Okay. There's one I am looking over my, I'm, I'm in my office, I look up and I see several Qurans. They all have one binding, but they contain within them, there are 114 chapters or surahs in the Quran. They are very, the ones written in Mecca are very, very different from the ones written in Medina. Okay. They're so different from each other that I could give a 15-minute course on how they differ and then give you a cheat sheet. And I could then quote you verses at random, and you'd be able to say, oh, that sounds like Medina, or mm. that sounds like Mecca. They're okay. radically different from each other. Okay, wow, interesting. The, early ones, <clears throat> the earlier ones are all religious, and about you have to believe your prophet and obey what he says. Okay. The ones in Mecca and Medina become very political mm. and very legal and not so beautiful. Okay. Here's, a, here's another difference between Mecca and Medina. In Mecca, there is no jihad. What, you, what will happen to you if you do not believe the prophets, you will simply go to hell after you die. 
in Medina, this is going to change to a political message, which is if you do not believe Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, you can be destroyed in this life. Okay, okay, okay. So that you can see here in just my brief summation that there is a vast difference between the two. But now let's, let's go back to Medina. <clears throat> He's arrived in Medina. He was invited to Medina. There were five tribes in Medina. There were two Arab tribes and three Jewish tribes. Before Muhammad got there, there had been a small civil war. The two Arab tribes had fought with each other, and two of the Jewish tribes aligned themselves with one and one tribe with the other. So there was a small civil war in Medina. There was a tradition in the Arab Peninsula to invite a religious leader into a political situation that was divisive and have him become judge. He'd become him, become the, ameliorator, the ameliorator, is that a word? But anyway, it was his job to bring peace. Okay. And so after the, the first order of political business that Muhammad did was to draw up a charter of understanding, which basically said that you had to do business his way and that things were to be brought to him for resolution. Now, this was not so much a usurpation of power, because that's the reason they brought him to Medina. Yeah, he was invited to do that, right. That's what he was invited for. Okay. So, the story, it, the Muslims are now having a difficult position, because remember, they like migrants, they've showed up in Medina, and there was no welfare system. So what happened was, is that the helpers, and there's an Arabic word for this, became the supporters of those who were the migrants. And they were supposed to be brothers, and they were supposed to share and share alike. However, they were very poor. And so this is going to play a part in the development of Islam, this poverty. So the Muslims were quite poor. Okay. Now, some of the people who came with them were quite wealthy. Abu Bakr was Muhammad's closest friend and, who, and became the first caliph. He was a wealthy man, and he, he was a true believer. Whatever Muhammad said, he believed it. And he would also back it. He would put his money where his mouth is. So they had a couple of people who were very prosperous. And by the way, after Muhammad becomes a prophet, there's never any further notice of his ever having done work in the normal sense of work. Remember, he was a hardworking businessman. Yeah. Once he became a prophet, he no longer did business. Okay. So the Meccans and so no, I'm sorry, the Medinans were su supporting the new people from Mecca. They're poor. Now then, there's something else. There is, Muhammad has an un, Muhammad had a quality. He never forgot a slight. Everything that you did that was negative to him could be settled one day, and he would remember a long time, and he never forgave. He, he took care of business. Okay. So, he had a lot of unfinished business left in Mecca. Now, now, did that did, was that quality um, applying also for before when he was running the caravan and those times? You know, I don't know. It's just that in Medina, this becomes very much clear that he does not ever. If there's an, if Muhammad suffered an injury, he never forgave it. Okay. It was, to be, it was business to be settled later. All right. He was not. He was not a. He would forgive people on one basis. If whatever you did to him bef before, if you became a Muslim, then the deal was off. You're not fully accepted to him. But okay. until you did that, he never forgot what, what you did that he considered wrong. Okay, got it. So, 
By the way, I just had a thought. I'm talking all this on the, uh, completely off the top of my head. I don't have a single note in front of me. Okay. And this material, which I've studied for so many years, it's been probably at least six or seven years since I read the material. So if we make a mistake, it's well recorded. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds great. That's fine. I, it, it makes so it anyway, interesting if it's spontaneous like that. Well, it's as, this is as spontaneous as it gets, let me tell you. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Yeah. But if some Muslim listens to this later, they go, oh, see, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That was, that was wrong. So anyway, I'm talking off the top of my head. Okay. But it makes a better story. Yeah. And by the way, I'm perfectly willing to be corrected. Yeah, yeah. We, any mistakes that come up, I mean, all they have to do is, is email me, richard at lostartsradio.com, and I'll talk to you and we can, we can uh, correct whatever the mistake is. Oh, yeah. I mean... Because as you can tell, what I'm trying to do here is I'm just trying to tell the story. I'm not uh, trying to uh, shade it anyway, one way or the Yeah, other. We, we just want everybody to know the real history and, and everything that came out of it. And exactly. Then they can do with it what they want, but at, at least it will not be based on ignorance or misconception, which I think is a big step exactly. forward. Exactly. Yeah. I am very big on what as scientists we call fact-based reasoning, and what I'm trying to reveal to you in this talk are facts that I read in the story of the life of Muhammad by Ibn Ishaq. Yeah, and, and so far what, what you've said about Muhammad, it sounds like he would have wanted the same thing for everybody to know everything about his life. Well, so much so that his Quran says that everyone should know everything about his life. Remember those 91 verses? He, yeah, he so living. we're actually doing what he would have wanted in that sense, I think. Right. Now, by the way, let me tell you the, another thing here is the super importance of why we have to know Muhammad. Briefly, there are five pillars of Islam. None of those five pillars can be practiced with what is found in the Quran. None of them. Okay. So it is not possible to be a Muslim based upon the Quran. It's simply not possible. You have to have Muhammad in order to know how to pray. You have to know Muhammad in order to know, even know the Shahada, which is not found in the Quran. There's no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet. Okay, okay, interesting, the yeah. The first part of it is found. There is no God but Allah, but not the second part. So everything, if you're going to give the zakat, which is the charity tax, uh -huh. that has to be according to the rules. You can't do it according to what's found in the Quran. You can only do it with what's found in the traditions, or the hadith, or the sirah, which is the life of Muhammad. Okay, so, so you, you really have to know these three books to be following Islam correctly and fully. Yes. Okay. I mean, that's, that's um, good. And this is important to make because most people think that, well, Quran, Islam is a religion, which is not true. Muslims don't claim that it's a religion. They claim it's a complete way of life. Mm -hmm. We need to get that straight. Okay. So if you're going to be a Muslim, you have to know Muhammad as well as Allah. A brief stat a statistic here. If we put the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith on the table, I've already said they'd be small, but... Muhammad is 84% of the textual doctrine of Islam. Allah is 16%. No, Allah is 14%. Muhammad is 86%. Okay, now, now you said it, it was considered a way of life rather than a religion, but I would, I mean, just from what I've heard from Muslim friends of mine, it sounds like many of them would consider it, yeah, it's a religion, but that religion is supposed to be your whole life. Well, we can say this, we can, you're saying the same thing. Maybe the it's the same, here, yeah. It, it, it includes how, what laws you practice, how you marry, how you have sex, 
Right, but they would not. Take, they would not go along with saying it's not a religion. I don't think. At least a lot of the ones. Well, I think it, it is not just a religion. Would be a better way to say it. Yeah, that I think they would probably all agree. Right, right. It is not just a religion. When I say it's not a religion, I mean most people. For, let's take Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion. It has almost no political doctrine whatsoever at all. Okay. Religion is pretty much the totality of Buddhism. Okay. Whereas with Islam. The, it, it, the political part of it is actually larger than the religious part of it. Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't even understand that. I think that all this the, is fascinating, by the way. Yeah, I hope, I hope we're keeping your interest. You're so familiar with these things. I, I, I don't want you to be bored by these basic questions, but, you know. Well, my whole thought process is to be sure that I'm lining up all my dominoes and we cover all of them. Okay, I, I, until recently, I didn't even realize the importance of the Sirah and the Hadith. I only thought in terms of the Quran, and I had read the Quran trying to understand Islam better, but there were so many, I mean, it was just all holes in my understanding until I got the oh, yeah. other, other documents and understood what they were. Let me say something here about the Quran. The Quran that you have, you buy from the bookstore, yeah. cannot be understood on its own. No one can understand the Quran based on the Quran alone. And there's okay. a difficulty here. We're, this is a slight sidebar, but we need to understand the importance of Muhammad's life. There are verses which contradict each other in the Quran. You have your religion, I have mine. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Those are very tolerant statements about religion. Matter of fact, that there be no compulsion in religion sounds almost like the First Amendment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but what happens is, later, in Medina, there's a second principle established, which is, if you do not follow Muhammad, if you disagree with Muhammad, you can be destroyed for doing this. All right, right, right. Now, so now then, <clears throat> the, the Arabs... <clears throat> The Arabs of Muhammad's day pointed this out to him. Muhammad, what you're saying contradicts what you said earlier. What are we to believe here? The Quran in three verses has this to say. The latter verse is better and stronger than the earlier verse. So when you see contradictions, in order to resolve the contradictions, you must know which is earlier and which is later. Yeah, so you can't, you can't do it without a timeline. That's clear. The timeline is Muhammad. So you okay. must know Muhammad to have a timeline, and you cannot understand the Quran without resolving the contradictions. Okay. So Muhammad is necessary. And th by the way, this is not late-breaking news. This is news only to those who think the Allah, that all of Islam is found in the Quran. Everyone else doesn't tell the story that way at all. Fine scholars, like I have here a Quran written by, uh, let's see, look for the name, Madudi. Okay? Mm -hmm. He is a great scholar of the Quran. But not even Mahdudi can understand the Quran without Muhammad because he too has to resolve the abrogation process. And abrogation is the process where the latter verse is stronger or better than the earlier verse. Okay. You simply cannot understand the Quran without Muhammad's life. So I want people who are listening to this lecture to know this, that I'm not proposing something which is radical or new. This is very, very old news. Okay, got it. So I think we've established the need for Muhammad. You can't be a Muslim without it, because he tells you how to pray. He tells you all the details of life. And so, and he's also necessary, because other without him, you can't even understand the Quran. Yeah, because the timeline comes out when you're talking about his different parts of his life. He's obviously older and in a different place at, at certain times. Right. Okay. The, the other thing, by the way, if you buy one of the bigger Qurans, 
you'll discover there are comments in it. And if you buy one that's much of a scholar's version at all, it will tell you this surah was written in Mecca. This surah was written in Medina. Mm. So again, when I say there's two Qurans, an early one and a latter one, a Meccan Quran and a Medinan Quran, now they're in the same binding. Once again, this is absolute classical scholarship. This is not some aberration that I've introduced into the discussion. Okay, and it was Muhammad himself who said that Medina is more accurate than Mecca. No, it's later. Well, that's what I mean. Therefore, because it's later, it's more accurate. Because not more accurate, but it takes precedence and and yeah. overturns what he had said before in Medina. In yes, Mecca. abrogates it is the abrogates okay. the earlier verse is the classical description. Okay. okay, great. Now, by the way, there's a whole bunch of scholarship on this business about abrogation, how it's done. Jurists argue about it, and you put finer edges on it and everything. But basically, I've described to you the fact that, for instance. I can make an exact analogy here. Let's say that you are arrested for drunk driving, mm-hmm. and you show up in court, and you bring some law books from 1938, and you say, Judge, there's nothing in here about drunk driving, so therefore it's okay for me to drive drunk. Mm-hmm. The judge would go, now these laws were passed in this date, and we're living in their time, not an older time. So we're very used to, in our own legal system, of having the fact that you can't go to court and be tried under old laws. You can only be tried in court under the current laws. And just because they used to do it that way back when we had horses, Mm -hmm. not cars, doesn't mean that's anything. So I'm just trying to explain to you this business of abrogation, where the latter one is better than the earlier one, is a principle of law. Yeah, the latest precedent takes priority. Exactly. Okay. So there's nothing strange here. Okay, Let's go back to our story of Muhammad and Medina. Right. Muhammad has several problems. Problem one is he's poor. Problem two is he has some issues with the Meccans because they drove him out of Medina. They drove him out of Mecca. Right. He didn't just leave, okay? Right. He was driven out. As a matter of fact, they were threatening to kill him. Okay. Now, there was no actual blood spilt in Mecca. But they did say, we want you to get out of town. We're tired of living with you. We want you to go home, wherever that is. Okay. Actually, they didn't say go home. Basically, they said, get out of Dodge. Right. So now then, he has two problems. Number one, he needs money. And number two, he has a psychological issue, which is these people ran him out of his home. And it's important here because, you see, he is now forbidden to be at the mosque, Mecca, uh, the Kaaba. Okay. So this is going to play an important part. So what he decides to do is, it turns out that Mecca is south of Medina. And to get from Mecca to Syria, you need to go near Medina. You need to go near Medina. So we now have people doing business. They have, they have caravans. Now, what does Muhammad know about? He knows about the business of caravans. Mm-hmm. So he decides that he's going to rob the caravans and this way take care of two problems. Well, now, maybe maybe he didn't decide it. Maybe he was ordered to do that by Gabriel. Is that possible? I'm now thinking here, as I recall the story, this, this, I don't recur this being happening in the Quran. This this story all comes from the Sirah, the life of Muhammad. Okay. So, we, in other words, we really can't tell whether it was his own idea or whether he was following orders. The Quran comes in, he's going to come in on the eighth raid. The first seven it doesn't mention. Okay. 
on the eighth raid, he, he, he sent men out for the purpose of robbing the caravans. Okay. The Meccan caravans. Right. Okay? Right. They fail the first seven times. <clears throat> on the eighth try, they make it. But what they did was, is they robbed the caravan. There were three men in it, as I recall. They killed one and captured two. And, and, but the problem was, is they did this in the month of, it was supposed to be a sacred month. There was a custom amongst the Arabs. Remember, this business of doing raids was something that everyone was quite familiar with. This was standard business practice. The Celtic peoples would, would rob cattle and the Arab peoples would rob caravans. This was just, this, this had gone on for a long time. Okay, in other words, this didn't conflict with the tenets of the 360 religions that were in Mecca, right? Or we could say the customs of the Arabian Peninsula. Okay. There were always squabbles between tribes. There was a lot of tribal combat. Remember, they had been unable to achieve a unified government up to this point. These were querulous people. Okay. So... On the eighth try, they succeed, but they captured the, uh, the problem was, is the raiders had a problem. If the caravan got any closer to Mecca, that was a sacred space and they couldn't rob them there. However, they were in the last day of the month of a sacred month in which no weapons were supposed to be carried. So there's supposed to be peace. So they decided to grab the goods, even though it was in a month in which they were not supposed to be committing acts of violence. They come back to Mac, to Medina with the money, the, the, uh, kid, the men they kidnapped, and they said, to Ma, they said to Muhammad, well, we did it. And then, then the Arabs said, you have, you have become a criminal. You have violated Arabic war law, law of war. And so now then the Quran steps up into the solve Muhammad's problem. What they said was, yes, it is wrong to do violence. What Allah says is it was wrong to do violence, but what they did driving out of the cabal was worse. Oh, okay. So therefore, so therefore the goods are yours. Muhammad took 20%, and this became the war chieftain usually only took 25%, so when he only took 20%, it was recognized as he was a generous leader. Right, right, exactly. Okay. Okay, so, but th this is this is the beginning of the violence. Yes. Uh, so one of, one of my changing. one of my big questions here, which I think might be pretty important, is whether the decision to start physical acts of violence was an order from the angel Gabriel. I do not recall it as being in that in that way. That's not the way I recall it. Now remember, I'm talking off the top of my head, mm -hmm. and I haven't. And then, even though I've studied this a great deal, I now spend my life, my daily life, not as a scholar, but more in a political nature, doing things like I'm doing now. Okay. One of the best periods of my life was when I just sat with papers piled around me, reading books. Right. I'm a scholar. <laughs> yeah. Now there was a time in which I could, I, I knew so many more details, but as I say, I now spend my life traveling, giving talks, and so. If I make a small boo-boo here, well, I told you why. Well, th this I, I'm interested enough in this particular question that maybe by the next installment, um, you could let us know what you think. Well, I'll do that. It would be very easy to do. Okay. But the, I do know this. The Quran steps up and stands in for Muhammad and says, yes, what you did was right. 
Okay. Violence in the peaceful month is wrong, but it is not as wrong as what they did to you. So therefore, what you did was perfectly all right. Now, is that, and, di- is that direct from Allah, or is that Allah yes. through Gabriel? Ah, uh, well, okay. Allah never spoke directly to Muhammad. He only spoke through the angel. So the angel told him it was all right, according to that. Yes. <clears throat> but now okay. then, the, the, there's a, let me explain a peculiarity about the language of the Quran. Okay. Allah doesn't speak very often with the word I. He very frequently speaks with the term we. Mm-hmm. which is sort of a peculiarity. And it's, you look at that and you go, we, what, do you got a mouse in your pocket? Mm-hmm. So the we here was, was telling him that it was okay for him to do this act of theft. Okay. And violence. Okay. Well, it might not have been a mouse, but it could have been Gabriel. <laughs> or I'm just guessing. Well, I just I mean, accept I it. Know. I just accept I just accept what is written, that he decided to, to do the, pol- the political action uh-huh. of uh, theft okay. and vengeance, and that the Quran comes in and says it's okay. All right. Now, let me say here, my Qurans, and I have three of them, they're sort of big, little, and bigger, I integrate the life of Muhammad into the Quran. So when you read my Quran, it's in the right time order, and what you discover is, is that Allah is in the business of taking care of Muhammad's problems. He has a problem in that this theft, the raid on the caravan was condemned, and he solves the problem and makes it okay. Okay, and that's probably in in exchange for Muhammad giving his life to Allah to be the prophet, I would assume. Could be. It just, it it doesn't really say. It just says that it was okay to do this. Okay. All right. this, Allah's going to step up to the plate many times in Muhammad's life and take care of his ongoing problems. Okay. It, he, as a matter of fact, it's peculiar how many of his personal problems work its way into the Quran. Going ahead, there was a period of time in which Aisha was considered, maybe she was having a little hanky-panky, and Allah steps in and takes care of the problem. Okay. And says that she's innocent. And do this to those scandal people who spoke ill of her. Right. What I'm saying is when you lay out the Quran... In parallel with Muhammad's life, you discover that Muhammad's problems were always solved by Allah. Okay. okay. Even his personal problems. Okay. So, we now have a way to make money. Right. And with that came an, an attraction to, the, to Muhammad. Because Muhammad had now had a way of life in which everything was settled, and he, he, by the way, was obviously a man of magnetic personality. Mm-hmm. So you now had a leader that you could believe in. You had a structural system in which all your problems were taken care of. And you were now, it was now possible to get rich. Okay. Well, this is, uh, most religions want you to give the church money or the whatever money. And here was a religion that would give you money. Right, right. Big advantage. Big advantage. Yeah. So Muhammad, therefore, began to raid the caravans more and more. Okay. Well, the Meccans, of course, noticed this. <laughs> <laughs> right. guess so. And so they got together. They had a big caravan. The caravans he got mostly were small ones. There was a major caravan. Now, one of the things that comes out when you read the story of Muhammad is, is that he had a spy system that was really good. Okay. He knew what was going on in Mecca. There were people still there who were giving him information. So he knew when there were caravans coming, and there was a big one. So, 
when they, they he also now is getting bigger armies together. Okay, at first it was his, I think his uh, first raid consisted of three or five people. I don't remember the exact number. Now, these caravans, they're, they're, I picture them like lines of camels loaded down with, with things. Is that right? That's my image as well. Okay, okay. As a matter of fact, there are many camels in the story of, of Muhammad's life. They're like furniture in the room. And his favorite was to have a red camel. These are just small details, which most okay. people don't know. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Well, I wasn't either until I read <laughs> The Life of Muhammad. Yeah, okay. So now then what happens is this. The Meccans, when they understand that Muhammad's on the move to steal the, from their big caravan, they send out a small army that was three times as big as Muhammad's army, and they said, okay, they, went north, they marched north to Medina, and there they were... There was the first of the great battles of Islam at Badr, B-A-D-R. The Battle of Badr changed the world. If you were to drop a list of history, historical battles that changed the world, one of them would, for instance, be the fall of Constantinople, but another would be the Battle of Badr, because all of a sudden Muhammad became now a true political force. He won at the, at the Battle of Badr, and this, this now brought him great power and prestige. This is very important because later, as his life goes on, he's going to live for 10 years in Medina. Mm-hmm. As he becomes more and more successful, he attracts more and more people to him. To quote one of his latter-day followers, who is no longer amongst the living, Osama bin Laden, people like a strong horse. Mm-hmm. Right. Muhammad was giving them a strong horse. The more he was successful, the more people became Muslim. Okay. Okay. And he was to commit, as I recall, there are going to be 100 acts of jihad in Medina, of of them roughly 40 or 50, and I'm talking off the top of my head here, were actual battles. There were assassinations ordered, uh, many of those. But uh, anyway, so we now have we now are having prosperity and a larger uh, group of Muslims. Okay. Now there was another problem in Medina, which is going to become very important. Remember, Muhammad gave evidence of himself as to who he was in in society, as he was a member of the lineage of prophets, which had been there since the dawn of time. The first prophet was Adam. Right. He was the final prophet. Now, there's an important thing to know about Mecca. There were Christians in Mecca. As a matter of fact, there was one Christian in particular that Muhammad loved to talk with, and the Meccans said, oh, you're getting all this Quran stuff from this uh, Christian slave. And the Quran even addresses this issue. Remember I said the Quran always solved Muhammad's problems? Yeah, yeah. The Quran says, oh, we know they say you're getting this from that from, I, I forget how it calls out the person, mm-hmm. it says, he does not speak a pure Arabic. And the Arabic of the Quran is pure Arabic. Okay. So, but there were no Jews in Mecca. Now remember, Muhammad identifies himself as being part of the lineage of the Jews. Yeah, yeah. A Jew, but a lineage of the prophets. Okay. Well, remember there are three Jewish tribes in Medina. They took yeah. one look at Muhammad and said, uh, <laughs> you're not one of our prophets. Mm-hmm. In other words, they denied his foundational story 
of how who he was. Okay. All right? They said, we know the prophets, and you are not a prophet. Well, this was a problem, because they were now attacking his, his, the very foundation of who he said he was. Yeah, and they had some credibility, Long- too. Right, and they, they, they sort of said, look, we're able to talk about the prophet business. Uh-huh. Anyway, he turned on them and said, number one, you're not even really good Jews, and he would use evidence of the fact how they were not following the Jewish law of the halakha in detail. Mm-hmm. There was one particular issue about stoning adulterers. Right. And uh, they said that, well, what we do basically is we humiliate them and run them out of town. And he says, ah, 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 ah. Here in your book is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stone them to death. Yeah, that, he, he's right about that, actually. Well, he shows... He, this man is a shrewd, tough man. Yeah. Okay? You do not want to underestimate him. Right. So the Jews, there's three tribes, and over a period, I think, of the next two years, it ends where there are no Jewish tribes in Medina at all. Medina is, to use the German term, Judenrein, cleansed of Jews. Mm-hmm. Now, the first two tribes got run out of town without any money. That is, they were exiled after they had their goods taken. Right. And there are excuses given for this, and I do not remember the, the different excuses given. But there now comes a time in which they, the third tribe is accused, after uh, the first two tribes are exiled, the third tribe supposedly is, has some alliances and helped some of Muhammad's enemies, and so he sold, he attacked them, sold the women as slaves, mm-hmm. sold the, adopted the children into Muslim families, and killed all the men. Right. So there's a famous scene in which, as you know, as you're a teenager, you could be a, still a boy, or you might be a man, and so there's a, fam- there's a, a famous scene in which all the, those who are considered the question, well, are you a man or not, they have to raise their, ha- their robes, and if they have pubic hair, they become one of the 100 who are, who are beheaded in Medina. Now, I, th- I thought that that number was 800. Is it 100? What did I say? You said 100. Oh, it's 800. Okay. I okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it is 800. Yeah. Now, by I, the way, there's some I remember, question. Is, there, I remembered that. It was impressive. There are some who argue that it's as little as five. and uh, there, there's, there was hundreds. Okay. And I think the most classical figure is 800. Okay. So, Muhammad now lives in a town without Jews. Well, this is important, because he's now going to go ahead. There are Jews living nearby. They're about 150 miles away, as I recall, mm-hmm. in a town called Kaibar. So, Muhammad sends out an army against Kaibar, and he defeats the Jews of Kaibar. And he does something which is going to become politically important for the world. He did not remember the last tribe of Jews. He either enslaved them or he killed them. Right. Or adopted the children into the families. Yeah. In Kaibar, he came up with another solution, which is going to change world history. And that was they became dhimmis, D-H-I-M-M-I. A dhimma is a contract. A dhimmi is someone who signs a contract. Okay. Basically what they... Dis- told Muhammad they would do is he could have the land and then they would pay a tax of 50% called the jizya. Okay. 
They were no longer they were no longer citizens. They were now subjects, and they could continue to worship, but they did not run any business of the community. Okay. This is becomes the standard for Islamic tolerance. When Muslims proudly proclaim that they're a tolerant people, that they do what needs to be done, but they have a space for the people of the book. The people of the book are Jews and Christians. Okay. Let's stop and examine this peculiar phrase. People of the book. Well, there's, in today's world, it would be a strange term to use because we have something called universal literacy. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. So he was referring to people of the book being the ones that were able to read at that time? And they had a religious text. Okay. Remember, the religions of, uh, the religions of Mecca, of which one of them was Christianity, uh -huh. a peculiar form of Christianity, but nevertheless a form. Let me correct my thought here. Uh, and I've lost my train of thought. Well, you were saying that, that, that the people of the book were the ones who got oh. turned into dimmies, right? And they right, had to right. sign a contract the other thing is, all that. Yeah, the other thing we wanted to, to establish here is, is that there are no books written in Arabian at this time. Yeah, I bet you almost nobody first, realizes that. That's interesting. The Quran was the first book written in Arabic. Huh. So therefore, to be a literate person who had books was extraordinary. Right. Hence the term people of the book. Because no one in Mecca had a book. Now they had religious customs, how to pray, and they had a, 360 gods. They were polytheist. Yeah. And there were usually two gods in the same house. Uh -huh. That is, the husband had a god and the wife had a god. And mm. frequently these gods were associated with architecture, not architecture, but geological features in different areas. Okay. It was considered at that time, somewhat like the Native Americans, that every piece of land had its spirit or, mm -hmm. quote, God. Right, right. So the people of the book, let's go back to that. The people of the book were now allowed to exist with inside Islamic politics, but they had to be subjugated. They had to be dimmies. Okay, okay. They subjects, they were not citizens. Okay, so, so the tolerance was, even though they had the wrong religion, they were allowed to live. They were allowed to live. But they had to pay money. Okay. And they, okay. Had, and they couldn't pass their own laws. They could have their own customs. But power, Mao said that power grew out of the barrel of a gun. Muhammad said power grew out of the Quran. Okay. If you didn't believe in the Quran and believe that he was prophet of Allah, then you didn't have any political power. Okay. Only okay. power came from believing that he was the prophet of Allah. Okay. So we've established a very important principle here. What is religious tolerance in Islam? Mm -hmm. And what is the position of the Jew and the Christian? Now, now not everybody got the choice to become a dhimmi, right? Some people did not. Yes. Um, this is true. And, and when, uh, he, when he attacked that, I forget what town you said it was. where, where Tybar. Yeah, the last one, right. Um, the reason he attacked that town was because they were Jews, right? I, I didn't right. think you mentioned any other reason. No, 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 no. They, he went there specifically because they were Jews. Okay. Okay. See, they had a competing ideology. They had prophets, and he claimed to be the final prophet. 
So there's a competing ideology. Well, and, and it would be uncomfortable to have uh, Jewish uh, towns uh, spreading the idea that Muhammad was not a real prophet. Well, there is that problem. Yes, there is. Okay. Now, what happened is, is that when they surrendered, there is another town which was composed of Jews called Fadak, and they said, don't even send your army, we'll just send you the money. Okay. Okay. Now then, I just, reserved, I just remembered a hadith, which is, uh, I think, important. One of the things is, is that I, as a scholar who speaks about Islam, I'm sometimes called a racist, which is peculiar because Islam has absolutely nothing to do with race whatsoever at all. Right, yeah, I noticed that too. Now here's an oddity. The, uh, if, there, if all slaves are given their ethnic origin, you're an Arab slave or a white slave or a Jewish slave, but that's given, mm -hmm. or a black slave. Riding into town, there's a hadith, a tradition, in which the man says, we were riding into uh, Kaibar, and the wind blew the Muhammad's robe, and I could see the whiteness of his thigh. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring it up, it just happened to trigger the remembrance of that. Muhammad is repeatedly called a white man in the hadith. Oh, yeah, he had really light skin, according to that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is just an oddity. And this oddity has, ties into something that happens in American society today, which is in the prisons of America, Muslims will tell black folks that they are, the natural religion of the black man is Islam. Right. The natural religion of the white man is Christianity. So Christianity is the religion of the white man, Islam is the religion of the black man. What's ironic is, is that Muhammad had white slaves and black slaves, but that he himself was a white man. Yeah, very interesting. I just find this a little slightly odd. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And by the way, as I'm telling you these things, you can also see that for a proper understanding of Islam, it is important to know Muhammad. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely the best place for us to start is, is to know as much about his life and what he said as possible. Well, first off, not only is it important because of you can't understand Islam without it, and I mean... And again, this is not late-breaking news. Any Arab scholar, any Muslim scholar would tell you, no, you have to understand Muhammad. Right, right. So the last thing you said was about the white and black slaves, obviously, according to Gabriel, because that's, you know, Muhammad wasn't going by his own opinions. It was all from Allah and Gabriel, because he was right. a prophet, not a regular person. And so according to Gabriel, and therefore Allah, slavery was fine. Right? Oh, absolutely fine. Okay. Absolutely fine. Um, I mean, you, way, you can't have a Muslim as a slave, but you can have other people as your slaves. Yes. Okay. Now, the Muslim is also a slave, but he is the slave of Allah, Abdullah, slave of Allah. Okay. Which is a common name. Yeah, but in human, way, so in human society, he would be a free person. Yes. Okay. Yes, in human society, they're free. Okay. A Muslim can't be in, uh, enslaved. Now, we say that, and yet, moving ahead to the, uh, as Islam became powerful and expanded politically, and now it was a power in Arabia, and not only Arabia, but Africa, there's a constant complaint by black Islamic scholars that slave traders, if they couldn't find enough Kafirs, and Kafir is the non-Muslim, right. they couldn't find enough Kafir slaves, that they would capture up black Muslims 
and enslave them and say, oh, your, your Islam is not worth anything. You're not really Muslims. Okay, so, yeah, if you just make sure that, that you consider them not real Muslims, then they can be slaves, too. Exactly. Okay. But, of course, <laughs> this introduces a principle called takfir, which is accusing, someone else, accusing a Muslim of being a kafir. There's arguments as to whether you can do that or not. Some say you can, some say you can't. And this is one of the things that people argue about Islamic State. Islamic State says, oh, they're not, the Shia aren't really Muslims, so therefore we can kill them. Yeah. Or yeah. a businessman, he's not enough of a Muslim, so he can be killed. Yeah. That gives you a lot more freedom in the business of uh, invasions, if you can just decide who's a real Muslim <laughs> or not. Well, it, this is an ongoing problem within Islam. Okay. Okay. Because if you, if you can treat them kafir badly, and then all you have to do, if you're doing business with another Muslim and you want to cheat him, you can say, well, he drinks beer during Ramadan, so he's not a real Muslim. Exactly. You can, see yeah. how goes from, you can go from political to personal rather easily. Yeah. But anyway, back to Medina. Okay. Muhammad now is, fights more and more wars and becomes more and more powerful. It turns out that he is brilliant at war. Absolutely brilliant. There's even one battle which is very important in Islam called the Battle of Uhud in which they lost. Okay. Now, by the way, as a, just a brief statistic, there is no jihad in Mecca, but 24% of the Quran written in Medina involves jihad. Okay. That's how important this is. Jihad goes from being absolutely non-existent to a huge portion. The point I'm making here with this observation is, is that it was jihad that brought Muhammad success. And so therefore, it is an integral part of Islam. Okay. And it's a very, it is a systemic doctrine. When you that say success, you mean signing up a lot of new members, right? Oh, well, when he died, every Arab in the Hejaz, which was classical Central Arabia, was a Muslim. Okay. That's how successful he went. Right. He went from having a very small success to an enormous success, but it was all based on the principle of jihad and politics, not purely religious. Remember, in Mecca, he was just purely a religious teacher. Right. And the religious part came in because the people who helped him with the jihad did it so that they get into paradise. Well, now, there so is that. There is that. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting thing about dying as a jihadist. That is, um, the eschatology of Islam is, is that you suffer the punishment of the grave, that is, being dead has its own punishment that you're aware of, and then there is the dread of judgment day, in which all of your good deeds will be weighed in a balance against all of your bad deeds. Mm -hmm. Now, there's magic multipliers you can have on good deeds, by the way. There are some things that, like... Prayer during Ramadan is worth more than ten prayers. I'm making this up. Uh -huh. Prayers outside of Ramadan. Okay, okay. There's special benefits for this. But, we now have a very successful man, but his success is based on jihad. Right. Let's deal with something here. Jihad is not holy war. Jihad means struggle. Hmm. And it means effort. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting, but Mein Kampf could be, if, if, Maha, if Hitler had, been called, had spoken Arabic, he would have said, my jihad. Okay, right. Jaharb is the word for war, H-A-R-B. Jihad is struggle. It includes war, but it also goes far beyond that. 
Okay. Now there's a confusion, which is that some there's an argument. Well, the real jihad is the inner struggle, whereas all religions deal with the fact that okay, you've converted to Sikhism, mm-hmm. you become a Sikh or a Christian or whatever. Exactly, how do you do this, and how do you become better? Right. Well, there's a struggle we all have with. Like I used to have a very violent temper, mm-hmm. so part of my struggle as a human being was to quell my temper, okay. because I saw that. It created suffering in others as well as myself. Okay. So my attempt to get rid of my foul temper would be called my jihad. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Right. Now, here's the deal. If we take the traditions which deal with, there are, as I recall, 21% of the hadith are deal with jihad. Right. If we go through all those hadith which deal with jihad, and we'd get those that deal with jihad as a spiritual element as opposed to an element of war, we discover that less than 2% of the hadith which describe jihad deal with jihad as a matter of spiritual struggle. 98% of them deal with jihad as killing kafirs and battle and combat. Now we come to an interesting aspect of Islam. I've already told you this, but we haven't addressed it. Islamic knowledge is dualistic. That is, we have Mecca, we have Medina. The earlier verse, which is, uh, let there be no compulsion in religion, mm-hmm. that is an early verse. The latter verse is, you can kill them if they don't submit. Right, right. Well, which is the real Islam? Well, it turns out they're both real Islam. Okay? okay. Mecca is real. It is not something imaginary. So therefore... We have dualism is built in. That is, the abrogation process doesn't terminate the first one. It is still true because, you see, this is Allah speaking. If Allah says it, it's mm-hmm. still got to be okay. true. It can never be false. See? So the difference is you have to follow the later one. It is stronger or better. You can still follow the earlier one. Oh. But you're a better Muslim if you follow the latter one. Well, but, but you know, and, and I don't mean to jump out of sequence here, but, but if, you, if you're going to follow the earlier one and you get a call to join jihad in a violent sense and you say, no, I'm following the earlier one, you're actually not doing what you're supposed to, right, in that situation. Well, you've, 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 you've broached a difficult theological problem. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Strictly speaking, you're right. Islamic State says you're exactly right. But the average Muslim, look, the Quran itself talks about the fact that as Muslims became more prosperous and settled in and, and less revolutionary, the Quran pla- complains about the fact that Muslims no longer want to go out and commit jihad. Right. It's like, hey, you guys are getting fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah. That it's not what the Quran says, but that's basically the tone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, so you can be a perfectly good Muslim in today's world and not practice jihad. It's just you can be a better Muslim, and let's show this with the Quran. Well, you, you, you can only get be a, a good Muslim that way, if I'm understanding you right, if nobody actually calls you to jihad, but if they do and you refuse... I don't know if you're such a good Muslim at that point, according to the scriptures. Well, what you're, do you you're, think? You're now, you're, you're, you're now arguing just like Islamic State. You're quite okay. correct. Okay. Yeah, just according to what's written. Them. Right. Go ahead. But I, I just, I, I'm just telling you what is written. Yeah. Remember we were talking earlier about the punishment of the grave and the uncertainty of Judgment Day? Right, yeah. 
there's a way to solve that problem. Okay. The man who dies in jihad goes directly to heaven. He skips the punishment of the grave, and he skips the uncertainty of judgment day. Okay. So now then, it's a be- it's, so it's better to die, and we've sort of also this also addresses your, can you be a Muslim and not do the jihad? Yeah. Well, what the Quran verse says is, yes, you can, but it's a dicier business. Because Allah has a certain capricious quality to him. There's a verse in the Quran which is, I have made both men and jinn to burn in hell. Mm-hmm. That is, this is a predestination kind of thing. Okay. But now then, again, we have dualism. Parts of the Quran are very much Allah does what he wishes, and he can be capricious and arbitrary, or he's not. So you have dualism here. Everything, but this was to me the biggest intellectual breakthrough that I made in studying Islam was I was trained in quantum physics in which the answer to the ultimate question of is, is the universe material or energy? The answer is yes. It's whatever you want it to be and whatever you look for. If you examine an electron from the aspects of energy, you will discover that the electron is energy. If you study from the standpoint of matter, you will discover it has mass and it is matter. But which one is the real one? Yes, it's both. Okay. It, can ever, it, it is inherent. And so within Islam, it's, there's inherent dualism. There's always two answers. There's well, but like with the, with the one you just brought up with the electrons, yeah, they're both true, but you have to choose one of them in order to do further calculations to see what the implications are, right? You can't have both. Precisely correct. And that must Precisely have an correct. analogy, you know, a uh, corresponding part within Islam, I would think. Well, it appears to be that the most people, uh, look, I've known a lot of Muslims. I, the reason I was, the second phase of my studying Islam was because I had a lot of Muslim students. Not none of them ever th- remotely threatened me, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. They are Meccan Muslims, is what I call it. Then you have Medinan Muslims, what people call radical Islam, I call Medinan Islam. Oh, okay, okay. And the reason for this is I reject the term radical. If you're doing what Muhammad did, then you're doing what you're doing is normative. It is not radical. Yeah, I agree with that. Right. So anyway, so my terminology is, forget radical, it's Medina and Islam. Besides that, the answer comes directly from the doctrine. Okay, okay. But yes, so there's different kinds of Muslims. Okay, so... so uh, one thing I've really wondered about it is if you're, you know, if... I, 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 I'm saying all this with very little exposure to all this compared to you, obviously, but, but from what I've gotten from your books, Allah doesn't really recognize other than one kind of Muslim. It's just either you're a Muslim or you're not. And well, so there is that. If that's accurate, then my question you know, remains because of its implication for what's going to happen in the world. If you think you're a Medinan, I mean a Meccan Muslim, and the Medinan Muslims specifically call you to help them with a violent jihad, is it within your, your you know, valid religious options to say, no, I'm going to be a Meccan uh, Muslim? That's what most people do, but, but we also have to recognize this. There are other Muslims who lead life as a Meccan Muslim and then in an almost overnight position become Medinan. Because, the, okay. because you know the knowledge is there. It's just that you don't practice it. 
So it's what is like it? So what is it that ma- makes them decide to change actions? Well, I suppose that many things can. Number one, it is not an un, it is not an unknown process in human history to die, be willing to die for a principle. Right. That's one of the more interesting things about being a human being is that people will die for principles. It's considered very admirable in most cases. Yeah. Yes. So you can go from being an ordinary, everyday schmuck, okay, and maybe I shouldn't use that word, but just an everyday, ordinary person. Yeah. But now then you can choose the higher calling and become an extraordinary person. Okay, okay, okay. So I think that's how I interpret the Meccan is ordinary and the Medina's is extraordinary. You go from being a, just an everyday guy to a hero. Right, right, yeah. So I think that's why they do it. Okay. And by the way, I also think that it's one reason that, that Islam is becoming popular as a religion, is that it does not have a loosey-goosey interpretation. It has clear rules. Mm-hmm. Premarital sex? <laughs> Forget about it, unless it's with a slave that you've captured, who's a mm-hmm. kafir. Right. It ha- today, Islam offers very clear rules of life. It also offers a very masculine way of life. A great deal of Christianity has become sort of Mr. Rogers' version of life. Sweet, nice people, but they're not kicking any butt. Okay. They don't, they don't, so, and, and by the way, there's another reason. In, in other words, you're, you don't become like an action hero that way. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Mr. Rogers is not an action hero. Yeah. But you can, with Medina and Islam, you can become an action hero. Okay. And this, by the way, illustrates something once again. Everyone likes a strong horse. After 9-11, conversion to Islam became increased. There's a story in the Sirah, which is this. Muhammad said, kill every Jew you can find. Right. And a man, a brother's talking to his brother who had killed his Jewish business partner. And his brother says, how could you kill the man who put the fat on your belly? That is, this was a business partner and you made him prosperous. Yeah. He said, because Muhammad commanded me to do so. The brother said, well, if Muhammad commanded you to kill me, would you do so? He said, yes, I would. The brother says, what an incredible religion you have here. I must become a Muslim. Okay, yeah, that's, that's just an amazing story. And it, it says a, a lot about psychology. It says an enormous amount about psychology. People love a strong horse. Right. And so this is one reason for the popularity of Islam today, is that you can, by becoming a Muslim, become an action hero. You right. can become a jihadist. Right. You become someone who's feared and someone who is admired. But not only that, you become the strong horse. Mm-hmm. Other people look at you and go, You're what an admirable person you are. Right. Now, from my standpoint, I don't see it that way. But I'm a kafir. So as a Muslim, once you become a Medinan Muslim and you become a jihadist, you're now the best of the best. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's... You sort of it's, join Allah's special forces. Yeah, you, yeah you exactly. Go. It's totally amazing. So and, and, it's a psychology that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a long track record of success that way. And by the way, this is one reason that people are puzzled why Islamic State will put out. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the videos and stuff that Islamic State puts out, but the recruiting documents. And boy, they they they're they're beheading people. They're killing people. They're yeah. I, I was only else. able I was only able to watch them in the beginning, and then I really had too much for what I could stand of it. Well, I guess my problem was I realized they were, you know, killing actual human beings. Oh, yeah, 
this is not a drill. No. This is as real as it gets. Yeah. But the reason they do that is, is it brings them recruits. Yeah, you know, the, until you just now explain some of that, which makes total sense with the action movie hero and everything, I couldn't imagine why anybody would ever want to join a group like that that was just doing total destruction. Well, it is attractive. For one thing, you're very masculine. Right. I mean, you're, we're using the term action hero. And I'm not using that term, by the way, to be cute or derogatory. As a matter of fact, one of the objections I have to a lot of movies made today is, instead of real heroes who are real people, who are suffering and who are afraid, and yet they do the right thing, you yeah. have action heroes. Superman, you don't need to be a hero if you're Superman. I mean, what's going to touch you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, all the superheroes are, are pretty much like that. They seem to be well, above, I mean, they above don't the teach a real. They don't teach a real heroism. And that's, by the way, now I'm just an old man complaining here. Yeah. But the, the comic book characters do not give us the real model of a hero. Well, it was like the story that you alluded to with you having to overcome anger issues, right, earlier on in your life. Mm -hmm. And you didn't even kill anybody to do that. And you, nope. Right? And, and you, you went through real human issues and, and came through it and actually managed to do it. And that's the kind of hero you said they don't talk about. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, again, I find all this material fascinating. I, I, by the way, also am not the kind of person who ever starts fights, and yet I've, I'm now living out the final days of my life doing nothing but debating and arguing and persuading. And so, uh, but as an individual, I don't raise my voice. Mm -hmm. You can go through, I've had many debates, I've had, uh, I appear in public, and I never raise my voice. Right, right. But that's because I'm capable of not raising my voice. Used to, when I raised my voice, I didn't really have a choice. Well, you know yeah, I mean, you have to, de to do that, you have to develop a strength that's actually not acquired by most of the people who just go around killing people. Right. So anyway, I, here I find myself in the position of talking about all these things, and yet all of this is absolutely foreign to me. The doctrine of Islam, in particular Medina, is not the way I lead my life at all. Right. And there's another reason that I couldn't be a Muslim. The Quran has a verse in it which says, do not ask difficult questions. Well, I'm a trained scientist, and there's only one kind of person I have. And the real questions are the difficult questions. Yeah. Yeah, actually, real science, it seems to me, is being totally lost right now by design, and you're only supposed to be quoting and paraphrasing acceptable information, and that's, that's the only acceptable science. So, um, all right, so the point, your last point was you were saying how much of the Quran in uh, Medina in particular and the Hadith in the corresponding period was about jihad, 24 and 21%, if I remember. And you mm -hmm. said that 21% in the Hadith w being about jihad, about two of those 21% were about inner struggle and the rest was about war. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. So there, that's a very interesting measure, I think, and not only because... By the way, one of the things as a scientist, I was the first person to ever try to do measurements. Previous scholars of Islam would debate whether the real, is, the real jihad was the peaceful inner struggle or was the real jihad war. Yes. They would have debates. And I was the first person to come along and say, well, let's stop the debate and let's just measure how much peaceful 
jihad there is, and let's measure how much fighting jihad there is. That was brilliant. It's funny how those really significant discoveries are things that, after they're made, everybody says, well, I should have thought of that. You know, it's so obvious. Well, that's a really great idea. Is like, well, that's obvious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's been obvious discovered. for 1,400 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that, it's incredibly educational for people to hear about that because it, it, it makes it not a gray area anymore. They're talking about war most of the time. And by the way, notice what I say to the guys who argue that the, the inner struggle jihad is the real one. I say, well, you're right. It is real. The other guy says, no, 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 the real jihad is killing kafirs. I say, yeah, you're right. Right, 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 right. And uh, it's just that they're both there, and uh, so that we need to respect both of them and realize that they're both live options. Yes. And yeah. I think that this, this, this has been a totally different approach. But like I say, I couldn't be a Muslim because the Quran says I'm not supposed to ask difficult questions. And those, uh, if you're a trained scientist, that's like, well, what are those are the only questions that are interesting. Yeah. Easy questions, who cares? Well, I, I mean, but it's interesting that Allah doesn't forbid understanding complex issues. You're just not supposed nope. to ask the questions. Right? Well, so, so if we explain it, or at least as much as we can, and then it's open information for Muslim and non-Muslim alike. There's well, no prohibition against listening and understanding. I gave a lecture in Canada, and a man set up three lectures in succession. I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's hard work, by the way. Yeah. And on the front row was an attractive woman who gave the appearance of being Muslim. Okay. My first lecture, she wrote furiously and asked all kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. The second lecture, she wrote a little bit and asked a couple of questions. The third lecture, she took no notes and came up to me after everyone else had left and says, I want to thank you. She says, I tried to get you, I came to the mayor of this town, Calgary, and told him you shouldn't be here because you're a, you're a hater, mm-hmm. an immoral. She says, in your talk today, you have never raised your voice, you've never insulted, you've never condemned, you've never negated anything. You've merely explained what is. And then she stuck her hand out, which is, means she's not fully Sharia compliant. Mm-hmm. And she said, I want to thank you. You've given me many questions I must ask my religious teachers. Okay. Wow. That, to me, is perfection. It makes it worthwhile for the work that you're having to do. Well, to me, that's, to me as a teacher, that is as good as it gets. In other words, her, her attitude... Being at least open to, to uh, exploring that stuff may, means that you could actually be helpful with, with all these talks that you're giving. Well, that's my, that, that we have now touched on my purpose. Uh, I, I want to educate the world as to what is found in the Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith, and how it's interpreted in the Sharia. That right. is my purpose, is to educate. Okay. Now, I have found that once you educate, people reach their own conclusions. Right. Right. And, yeah. and, and by the way, I've adopted a language which is very neutral. Some people call Muhammad a pedophile. I, I do not ever use those words. Here's what I say. According to Bukhari, Muhammad married Aisha when she was six and consummated it when she was nine. Right. End of story. Yeah. I don't go further. I don't make judgments. I just say, this is what happened. This is the data. Interpret it for yourself. I don't need to explain this to you. Yeah, yeah. You don't Same have to go and say, say people are bad. Just explain 
what they said, believed, and did, and everybody can yes. study it themselves. And, that, and, that, and that's what I do. I just explain what Muhammad said and did, and what Allah said. <laughs> now, that, what was, the, again, the name of, of his young, very young wife that you just talked about? Aisha. Aisha. I, I remember from one of your books, and I think it was the first one about um, the Sirah, right, the life of Muhammad, that mm-hmm. when they were beheading the 800 Dru- Jews in the tribe that didn't get driven out, that Muhammad spent the day with, with that wife sitting and watching all the beheadings. Is that true? This is true. Okay. Yeah, that really this struck This is how the story is related. Right. And again, you don't have to say anything about that. Just that's what um, the Sirah actually relates. As, as what yeah, so that's, that's what happened. Yeah. And I don't say it was bad. I just say that is what happened. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, do, I do have my personal opinions about all this. Yeah. When I'm in front of an audience, in general, I do not try to say that was bad, that he was a bad person. I just say this is what, this is what the Sarah says. Right. So that's, That is my whole object as a teacher, is just to tell you, look, these are big, thick, difficult books to read and understand, and I've done this work, and here's what they say. Yeah, and you've also put in citations and references to your uh, timeline-correlated version so that people can tell that you're yes. not misinterpreting the original, correct? Well, let's, let's go back to the story I said where the man, Muhammad, said, kill every Jew you can lay your hands on. Yeah. If you hear that, and you, you may go, well, that's, that's a load of crap. Yeah, you would never exactly. never do that. Right. In my books, every paragraph starts off with a little index number. And that index number says that if you want to find this, you go to the original, and you look in this margin note, and you will find the full text. And I've had people who take my books, and at first they check everything out. They're like, well, wait a minute. And then after a while they just go, okay. <laughs> We're a third of the way through the book. Everything he says is there, so I'm yeah. You actually did the correlation work. So I, yes. if if somebody wants to do some checking because they don't know yet whether you're accurate, what advice could you give them about finding a good version of the originals of those three books? Well, actually, in my books, I give you those in the okay. bibliography. These are the original books. You can buy them on Amazon. Okay, like I bought mine on Amazon. I bought a used copy. Yeah. which I've regretted because I've just about worn it out. Okay. But my purpose is, is to let you understand what is the, in the original, and don't believe me. Right. Check only ask you, only ask you, someone to believe me to the extent that you'll go look it up where I say it is. Okay. Okay. At, at the point that we left off with Muhammad's life, um, and we just went over to talking about the percentage of the Quran and the Hadiths that were about jihad, what was the, what was next in his personal life at, at the point we left off? Well, you, let's see. There we was a, the there was a, got, oh, I know. We left off at the Battle of Uhud. Yeah, I think that's right. There was a village that, was it the one that was 150 miles away that they went and attacked? That, that, that was Kaibar. Uh, that's the we're last one Medina. I remember. Right. Okay, we're, 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 I'm bringing you back to Medina. And there's the Battle of Uhud, U-H-U-D. There's okay. a small mountain by that name. All right. And I was talking about how that this, there is a doctrine of war that's laid out, and that part of the business of war is you always lose battles. No one ever wins every, every battle. Okay. And this battle is put in the Quran for the purpose of instructing you, you must obey the Prophet Allah, because the Battle of Uhud was lost 
because some of the archers didn't do the work they were supposed to do. They were supposed to cover a certain point, and they were not supposed to move until the battle was over. Mm-hmm. Well, when they saw the battle was going for Islam, they broke ranks and ran to steal the stuff that was left behind by those battles, by those soldiers who were losing. Okay. And then that turned the tide. And so the, the thing is, the Quran deals with all the lessons of this, which is you will lose if you don't follow the Muhammad. And if you do lose, it's because you didn't follow Muhammad. Okay. So therefore, this is a lesson of resilience in war. So the only reason you don't win every time is because you're not a perfect follower. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So therefore, Islam in its war doctrine teaches how to deal with loss. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. this is very important because in sports, as there poker or anything else, you have to deal with when you lose or any business. No businessman ever has had all of his deals make a profit. Right. And you have to continue doing business in spite of that. So Islam is not deterred by loss. Okay. Its message is eternal, and it has worked in the past when people believed it and executed it. And if Islam is, and if and if Muslims are not doing well, what they need to do is to look to the to the doctrine of Islam and start doing things in the correct and proper way, and you will be successful. Okay. And by the way, this is the interpretation of, of uh, jihad scholars who are, <clears throat> are saying that the reason that Muslims are down and out in the world, that is, they're not as prosperous as Europeans, and if it weren't for the oil wealth, they wouldn't have any prosperity at all. The reason is, is you don't need to become a, be a better engineer. What you need to do is become a better Muslim. <clears throat> okay, and do they elaborate what, that, what they are referring to exactly? Well, now, they would also argue that being a good Muslim includes being a good engineer. But you must adopt an Islamic outlook. So you need to have a government that's Islamic. This mm-hmm. is the argument that's going on in Turkey today. Mm-hmm. Should the government of Turkey be secular or Islamic? And Erdogan says, no, no, it's to be Islamic. And then we will return to the power when Turkey was not just a country, but was the head of an empire, the Ottoman Empire. Right. So that's the argument being put forth by Erdogan if I pronounce his name right, Erdogan, I think they say, because that's, what, that's what's happening in Turkey, is we need more success, and to become more successful, what we need to do is not necessarily work harder or to adopt a better monetary system, but we need to become more Islamic. Right, right, right. Yeah, because basically Muhammad um, was conveying Allah's promise that if you do that, everything's going to work. And when we say everything here, we literally mean everything. Not just going to heaven, but you will be prosperous and dominant in this world. Right, right. Right, okay. Okay. All right, so what happened after that lost battle? Well, they continued to fight. And this, the battle draws to nigh when, I mean, by the way, finally, in about his eighth year in Medina, he pretty much has begun to... Win, win everything. Now, he okay. does lose an occasional battle. He and, lost one in Taif. But by and large, he wins everything. And these and battles the are wins, not happening because he has enemies that might attack him. No, if no, no, I understand no, no, no. it, it's battles beca- of conquest, basically. Exactly. Okay. Battles of conquest. So in his last battles, he heads north 
out of Arabia once Arabia is sub subjugated into Syria, which I believe you'll find is a country today. Mm -hmm. And his successor, Abu Bakr, took care of the business that, see, when Muhammad was alive, there were many Muslims who just saw him as a tribal chieftain to which they had an allegiance to. Mm -hmm. This was not the first time that they would have allegiance to other chieftains. When he died, there were many Muslims who said, well, you know, we tried the Islam thing. It was cool while it was working, but Muhammad's dead, and so our allegiance is elsewhere, and we're going on our way. Yeah. And Abu Bakr, who was the father of Aisha, said no. He was the first caliph. Okay. You will never leave Islam. And so he, there were the first war that Islam fought after Muhammad died were the Rita Wars, which took care of the fact that there is no apostasy in Islam. And, and Abu Bakr then, was he Muhammad's father-in-law, basically? Yes, he was his father-in-law, as well okay. as best friend and best supporter. Okay, okay. Do you know the name of the caliph of Islamic State? Uh, Al-Baghdadi something, I think. I don't know. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Okay. Okay, so he's... He took the name of the first caliph. Okay, got it. There's a lesson here. Islam is a constant unfolding of the same doctrine. It never okay. changes. The doctrine never changes. It just adapts and moves and changes in, changes in the sense of it adapts local politics, the printing press, the internet, mm -hmm. bombs, planes... But the doctrine itself has no need of change because it has been working since the days of Muhammad, and it has worked for the last 1,400 years. Okay. Okay. So what we're seeing unfold in Germany, what we're seeing unfold in Europe, what we're seeing unfold in Iraq, is all the same story being told over and over again. All right. So in other words, in order to be a perfect follower of Muhammad and Allah, you just have to do what he did. Basically, right? Exactly. Or what his followers there's also, did. There's also another teaching here. If you want to understand the immigration problem in Europe, if you want to understand the problem of Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram, mm -hmm. what do you need to do? You need to study Muhammad. If you're a Christian missionary and you want to convert Muslims, you need to study Muhammad. Muhammad is what you need to do if you're dealing... If you are trying to deal with Islam and you do not know Muhammad, you're a blind man and a room without a light bulb. Okay. And I, and this is not unheard of for people born into the religion itself, right? To not really understand or know the details necessary about Muhammad's life. This is very true. This is very true. The book that contains his life, the Sirah, is 800 pages long in fine print, and it's a very difficult book. Wow. My purpose okay. is in making it understandable. So, the Quran is notorious for not being able to be understood, and yet I've made it understandable. So, how? I want people, what, what was it like to try to make the Sira understandable? It sounds like that would have been a pretty hard job. Well, there was a time when my editor asked me the question. She says, Bill, this paragraph is ambiguous. I said, Well, here's the original. And she read it, and she reread it, and she reread it a third time. She says, I can't figure this out. I said, Well, it's ambiguous, isn't it? She says, Yes, it is. Then she looked at me and she says, is all of this book written in this difficult style? I says, yes, it is. She says, oh, my word. I'm just suddenly realizing what you have done. Yeah, that's a big job. And, and who originally wrote the Sirah? Well, Ibn Isak, which is Arabic for uh, Isaac, wrote it. 
and this was written roughly 150 years after Muhammad died. So it was based on oral traditions of the time? Yes. Now then, I'm going to put two pieces of something together here, which is intriguing. All right. I've already told you that you cannot understand the Quran without Muhammad, right? Right. Yet the, when the history of Muhammad was written down, his traditions and his biography, none of the people who wrote this down had ever seen him or heard him. Right. They had heard this chain of stories. Aisha told this man who told this man who told this man who told this man who told my uncle who told this to me. This is called, in our court of law, hearsay. Right. Now then, the Quran claims to be a perfect book, without flaw, without error. Mm -hmm. Okay? But we cannot understand it without Muhammad. So therefore, to interpret the world's perfect book, you must use evidence which is not admissible in our court of law. Right. And, and that's a typical... Uh, religious scriptural issue, I would think, because there's so much involvement of oral tradition. Yes. But I think it's just amusing or intriguing to say that the perfect, the only book that's ever been written that's perfect, because it wasn't written, it was delivered by Allah. Right. It's the perfect book. Can't be understood without something as faulty as hearsay. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's kind of a moot point and irrelevant the accuracy of the hearsay because everybody accepts it as completely exactly. true. Exactly. But now we get to the question. When you read the Sirah, it is so detailed. What they had for breakfast, what color camel. And that's an amazing, left. amazing memory for, or playing telephone for 150 years and getting that detail. It's so amusing, it's so amazing that I have taught now, some say, well, the Arab mind for memorization is so powerful that this can be done. I say, mm-hmm. I taught Arab students for eight years. I was not impressed. That's a personal judgment. Yeah, but, uh, but is, they didn't have perfect memories, in other words. Uh, nobody has a perfect memory. Yeah. The trace of a weak ink lasts longer than the mind of the strongest man. Right, right. Right. So therefore, we have a slight problem here. We much earlier you said, "Is this?" I say, "I report this as though it is the absolute truth." Now then, as a scholar, when you look at the detail of the Sirah, you go, "There is no way, no way that any man could remember all of this and then pass it along for seven to eight generations." It just doesn't work. Right. So therefore, although I treat it as perfect knowledge. As a scientist, I go, there's no way that this is true. Now, there's also some fascinating things to be learned from if you then read the Quran, not as a believer, but as a scientist, you suddenly realize many things become apparent. One of which is that the town of Mecca, which is supposedly described in the Quran, is not accurate. In, in what way? Things, what do you mean? Well, there are many, there are, there are, in the description of Mecca, there are descriptions of streams, stones, uh, canyons, and it turns out that all of these can be found in a town called Palmyra, which, is a, which was a, uh, oh, what was the name of those people, not Neapolitans, they were, uh, oh, I can't remember their name. Anyway, it's real clear that if you look at the evidence of the Quran, that Mecca was not the town where Muhammad lived, that the town, there's only one that matches it, and that's Palmyra. What's interesting is, for the first 200 years, all the mosques, which have a direction of prayer in them, 
Today, the mosque points towards Mecca. Right. The most ancient mosque all had a line. Their, their Qibla, the direction of prayer, points to Palmyra. Wow. So that's some additional suggestive evidence that Palmyra might have been the original location. Yes. And you know, when you do that, you get, you get all the right plant life. You get all the right geography. So there's a fascinating book called The Geography of the Quran in which an, an amateur scholar who spent all of his life in the Middle East just said, look, none of this makes sense. But if you move Mecca to Palmyra, then everything makes sense. How far away was it? Hmm? How far away was it? Considerable way. It's, in, it's basically in Syria. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Well, there's a lot of things that are amazing that scholarship is beginning to reveal. Uh, because up to this point, most religious scholars who studied it never bothered to go to Mecca or Palmyra and then to see how things line up and don't line up. Yeah. Well, the other thing, the point that you brought up about the 150-year gap between Muhammad's death and the writing down of the Sirah for the first time means all of the history that we've been talking about so far and all the battles and everything, those were all... Um, reported as part of Muhammad's life. Yes. So those depend, you know, understanding it, even that history depends on the Sirah being accurate. It all does. There are, there's a lot of very interesting work that's going on these days. The, uh, the study of Islam has always been in the hands of two sets of people, Arab, Muslim scholars and Kafir scholars. Right. These scholars have been very erudite people who prided themselves on their knowledge of classical Arabic and read difficult works, but they never tried to make it easy for other people to read. Today we have, the, the fact that we're doing this interview is part of a trend which has never been true before in human history. We are democratizing knowledge about Islam. Right. We're making Islam available to anyone who's willing to read a, an easy-to-read book now. Yeah. I'm not, I, I've been a part of this, but others have done it as well. The secret of Islam is being revealed. And people who are scholars, amateur scholars, are discussing things which the professionals never discussed. Yeah. I, this, I, is a, this is an interesting time in history. I think this is really important, especially since the physical um, outcome is, is at least affected by the degree of awareness that everybody has of what's going on. And if, I don't know if you've experienced this with your Muslim students, but um, a lot of the Muslim friends that I've met and known, my impression is they've never really learned much detail at all about the belief system. They've just no. ta taken it on like you would take on an inherited political party or football team exactly. or something. And then Precisely. everybody who doesn't agree with you is by definition bad, and you don't have to know why. It's just your team or your belief system. You are precisely correct. And so, so therefore, we want Muslims to understand Muhammad. We want right. Kafirs to understand Muhammad. Absolutely. We want military generals to understand Muhammad. We need everyone to... If I were ruler of the universe... I would see to it that every student learned about the Quran and learned about Muhammad. You say, well, Bill, that will make them all Muslims. Actually, I think it would give the exact opposite effect. Well, and, and the point is, if you believe in freedom, 
then everybody really should be free to, to decide how to live their own life based on the most complete knowledge they can get. And I absolutely agree. Right. And, and the question, though, that you brought up is, is, does, is that affected or changed by the fact that the Sira is based on 150 years of playing telephone with this information, and we don't know how accurate it really is? Does that matter now or not? Well, it matters, I think, that you learn this at two levels. Number one, I think you need to know what the believer believes. I think you need to know that. Mm-hmm. That's what we've been discussing up until the last 15 or 20 minutes. Right. But then I think we need to be able to step back and say, wait a minute. Do you really think we know the conversations that were held 150 years ago? No. Imagine that we knew nothing about Abraham Lincoln yeah. except oral stories, and we now sit down to write... Abraham Lincoln's life. If nothing had been written about Abraham Lincoln between when he got killed and right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the problem. Okay. Yeah, that, that so, makes it a real situation. It does. But I think that everybody needs to first learn what it purports to be, and then you can move on to the more difficult questions, which is, well, now, what really happened? You see, there's another problem here, which we'll deal with for our, our, for our final point of today. Yeah. When you say that Mecca was a trading center, and then you look at a map, and you look where Mecca is, which is in the lower part of the Arabian Peninsula. It's in the southwest part. Mm-hmm. And then you ask mm-hmm. yourself, it ain't on the way to nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's totally out of the way. Now, Palmyra is, on its, is a trading center. Okay. Okay. So there's two separate sets of questions. One is the implications that come from what everyone believes is accurate. History. Right. And the other right. one might be entirely secondary in its, uh, its implications for the world now. And that's the possibly just academic question of what really happened. Exactly. Because I think we need to know both what is purported to happen and what actually happened. Okay. All right. First, you need to learn what you, first. You need to learn what Muslims believe. Then you need to sit down and take a critical look at the Quran. For instance, the Quran says it's a perfect work in Arabic. Well, almost all the words which describe the essence of being a Muslim—the zakat, the shahada—all of these all of these words turn out not to be Arabic words, but Aramaic words. Okay. Okay. That's kind of peculiar, isn't it? That the words. The chapter name, Surah, is Aramaic, not Arabic. Yeah, wh- why do you think that is, actually? Well, now we're getting off into a very that, uh, another su- world. We can do another, another way time. another subject. Okay. But all these clues are, if, this, if, it, we, if we were Inspector Perot, we'd go, wait a minute. <laughs> this doesn't all fit together. Well, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to, if you're still open to it, we're going to do some more chapters of this series, but I, I, I do want to ask you to clarify one thing and that's where we left off with Muhammad he was mm-hmm. still still alive and he had not done the last battle yet just in a few sentences how did the rest of well, it last, end up once once he conquered the pagan polytheist and crushed the Jews he then left Arabia to okay. go into Syria to attack the, the uh, Byzantine Christians okay and that is his, the end of his life, but it sets up Abu Bakr, who purifies the Muslim position, which sets up Umar, who then is the second caliph who's going to move and conquer the Middle East and Persia and Egypt. 
Okay. Well, I think if that's how, you know, the last part that we're looking at now, I think it makes sense as we transition forward in time, not to just jump and, and ignore what happened for the last several hundred years, but take it from the, the caliphs that were the initial rulers of Islam, and then at least do kind of a historical review up to now, and then we can decide which parts of that are affecting what's going on today. Okay. If that makes sense. So More to come. Thank you. That was incredible, and I really appreciate it, Dr. Warner. We'll talk to you next time. But again, I say this. Isn't this material fascinating? I, I really think it is. Not not just academically fascinating, it's absolutely essential knowledge to have any understanding of what is going on in a big part of history right now. We cannot understand anything about Islam, anything about Islam until we understand Muhammad. Yeah, current of this... say, and it's actually easy to do in a mechanical way, but people don't want to do it because I think they're afraid of what they'll learn. Uh, yeah, exactly, and that gets back to the attitude of what is supposed to be real scientific inquiry, and that yes. is no matter what you're going to find out, all you're committed to is finding out what's true, and every time what you know turns out to not be that, you're willing to immediately improve it. We couldn't end on a better note. Sounds Thank you so great. much. Okay, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so there goes Dr. Bill Warner, Professor Bill Warner. I really hope you got something out of that. I mean, let me know what, what you think. If, if you think that this is an important subject related to your health, psychological, mental, emotional, physical, national, global, do you think that's right or do you think I'm totally off base by, you know, taking our time up with it? Write to me at richard at lostartsradio.com and let me know if you think this is a worthwhile topic to look at or not. And let me know if you're a member of the Muslim uh, belief system or not, and, you know, if you think I'm being against Muslims, which I'm really not, um, let me know what's coming across, because I don't always express myself the way I should. So, you know, I'll always try to improve. If you give me your feedback, it's very valuable. The other thing is, before I forget, um, you know that we, we're starting this special video subscription service as the first real money-making plan that I've thought should not be vetoed, because it's not going to be dishonest. It's not going to be pushing anything that will hurt anybody. It's going to be great value. We're going to be putting real heavy-duty information on video way beyond what the holistic doctors got killed for in the last couple of years in this country. And I don't care at this point. I, for whatever length of time I'm allowed to do it, I want you to have all the information possible. And I did not want to be on video. I'm doing that anyway as my little part of this contribution. So join us. If, if we can get lots and lots of subscribers, and I mean it's going to take millions, we could make the... Uh, the educational center and built the school that I've got plans for, but it's going to take a lot of money. This way is only four ninety nine a month per person, so hopefully everybody could do it without financial stress. And if you think it's not worth it, you can just cancel anytime you want. But I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to make it more, way more than worth it for you. And if you go to lostartsradio.com, you'll see a place to subscribe. One of the tabs, if I remember, is video subscribers. Go there and you can sign up and see what it's like. Uh, it's going to be incredible, and I, I'm just about to start making the videos probably in the next two days, so make sure you get your spot. Anyway, this is going to have to be really quick because I've got much more to say about Dr. Warner's presentation and discussion than we have time for. 
Anyway, uh, this is lesson one in, about Muhammad's life, and next time will be the history up to now, which I think would be incredibly interesting. History is a super exciting subject because it's real life, and yeah, it's taught in a very boring way in school most of the time, but the subject itself is incredible. Um, and what I found in talking to a lot of people is that most Muslims and most non-Muslims really don't know the details of uh, everything that Muhammad did, everything that he taught. And you really need to understand this if you're a Muslim, but also I think for everybody else, because Muhammad sa said clearly that, that he was the perfect, or, or at least Allah did, that he was a perfect Muslim. And if you want to be one of those, you have to follow everything he did. So, and it's for all time, so you have to copy it. And um, as I said, most Muslims that I've talked to haven't been totally familiar with that. Um, they, you know, recite that I, Muhammad, or Allah is the only God, and that Muhammad's his prophet. And it's like the, the catchphrase that you have to recite, and once you do, and this is not just true for Islam, most religions have this, that if you're willing to say a certain phrase, you're home free. And... You know, even there's a lot of people in other religions that do that and then they don't do anything to upgrade their lives and figure it's fine. And a lot of Muslims that I've talked to, they've memorized that phrase, but they don't really know the details of how they're supposed to live. And one of the reasons I wanted somebody like Dr. Warner to come on is um, to explain that because everybody, given what's happening in the world, they need to know that. Islam says those who refuse to convert to Islam, they have to become dhimmis, which we talked about in the discussion today, or tonight, or they have to die. It's really simple. You don't have to be, you know, an incredible, what they call a rocket scientist, although I'm sure not all rocket scientists are rocket scientists, right, if you know what I mean, but um, it's not complex. You have to convert or die, or if you're lucky, you get to be a second-class citizen. And as far as... Uh, you know, what they have to say about Jews, and we went over one of the tribes, you know, where Muhammad and his nine-year-old wife, this is not criticism of Islam, this is the truth. And it's written down by Muhammad and Allah that, um, well, actually, they didn't write it down, the people much later did, but what he told verbally is that he and his nine-year-old wife spent the day not having a picnic, but sitting around watching 800 Jews be beheaded. So, you know, Hitler didn't, compared to what Muhammad did with Jews, not personally, but what he ordered. And those two who refuse the call to jihad um, are going to go to hell according to the belief system, and they probably should be killed. In fact, it probably says somewhere that they should be killed. We'll check on that with Dr. Warner. But killing uh, non-believers is the fastest, one of the fastest ways to get into paradise. And also lying and stealing to get up to where you can kill non-believers is completely acceptable. I read this myself. And uh, Muhammad said, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead and lie to this guy that you have to get in, get his trust, and kill him. That'll be no problem because you're doing it to a kafir, and you're doing it for Allah, so it's no problem. Um, so the question is, and I, I'm sorry I'm talking so fast, but I'm really watching the clock here, and as usual, I've talked too much in the first part. So, um, what do really great people, whom I know many of in the Muslim faith, what are they supposed to do? You know, large numbers of them in polls actually support suicide bombers if they don't have to give their names in the polls. This is a concern. This is in the U.S., and it's also in Europe. So, what are you supposed to do if you don't really want to be a murderer? Are you supposed to kill people anyway? Supposed to help with uh, 
supporting the killers or, you know, what do you do? I, I remember this one point in the discussion where Dr. Warner said, well, ISIS, you know, who the U.S. government pretends to be fighting but is actually arming and training, is following Islam verbatim. This is a really interesting observation on his part. This is not to criticize Muslims. I love the Muslim people. They're fantastic. I, I've known Muslim friends for decades. And they've, I've never known one person in the Muslim faith who did not impress me as a great person. And I find that really interesting because every other religion I can think of, I've met some people in it who are really pretty seriously horrible in, in their current state of evolution of consciousness. And that's not true with the Muslims that I've met. They've all been great. So this is just another part of the position. The ones that are great people naturally are in a really hard position because what if enough jihadis, which jihad is a sacred element of Islam, you know, it's one of the best things you can do according to the, the scriptures. What if enough of them get into America like they're doing in Europe right now? And then they start calling on all the peaceful Muslims that have lived here, you know, normally for a long time to join them. And in the, in the scriptures itself, it says if you don't join them, you have to be killed. What are you going to do? You can't criticize it because it says it right in the scriptures. This is my problem with religion because if you're going to believe a scripture and that's how you run your life, that's fine if the scripture only tells you to do great stuff. But what if you discovered something in your scripture right now that says you have to do what ISIS is doing? What would you do? Where is your allegiance? Is your allegiance to God and the source of love that sustains all of creation and that makes you who you are? Or is your allegiance to what is written? This is not just for Muslims. And what if it's not about religion? What if it's about a gang that you were born into as a little kid? A violent motorcycle gang or some other kind of gang some kind of mafia, and your initiation is you have to kill a child. And if you don't do it, they might kill you. What exactly is it that you're going to do? And don't say, oh, I would never follow it. No, it's not that easy. Your family and the people surrounding you, your relatives, other people in the group, you know they're serious. They would kill you because of the belief system and to go against the scripture or to go against the rule of the government or the gang is unacceptable. What if you're in the military, and I have many friends in the military, I consider them great allies, not bad people at all. What if they're told to kill everybody in a village because the commanding officer basically is off on this ego trip that makes him feel powerful if he can order mass murder. Are you going to do it? What if you think that the other soldiers will shoot you with their rifles if you don't do it? What are you going to do? And don't just say you wouldn't do it. you got to sit down quietly, forget the arguing, forget criticizing other people, forget defending your image, showing how, you know, truthful you are or whatever. Forget it. Sit down Put yourself in your imagination into the middle of a jungle or a desert where your commanding officer and all of the peer pressure of the other armed uh, military people around you say, 
you have to kill all the women, children, and men in this village because there might be a terrorist. What are you going to do for real? So there are some people who get into obeying this kind of stuff because they like murder and they're really not in touch with realities at all. And they think that I'm just going crazy and getting the license to kill, whether it's from the military, from the government. You know, it's not just the military. What if you work for the medical profession? You're a medical doctor. And your standard of care, which is now enforced by the insurance companies, says you have to vaccinate a premature baby. And you know, if you're honest that the majority of them are going to be damaged or killed. Are you going to do it or are you going to lose your job? This is the question. Same question with Islam. Same question if somebody in the name of Judaism or Buddhism or Christianity or atheism or anything else who has to be obeyed orders you to kill. What exactly are you going to do? And don't give a you know, flippant answer because that's not an easy situation. So, you know, I'm, I have nothing against atheists, but to me, God is absolutely real. And it's not some kind of a nasty person who wants to kill you or put you into permanent torture if you don't follow the rules. That's a human level of understanding. The God level of understanding that I resonate with is way different than that. It has love for absolutely everybody. And the only reason you want to give up all levels of mistakes and crimes and misdeeds in your own life is not because God is going to be damaged if you don't, because that's a permanent source that will never change. But it's because you're not going to be able to reconnect to who you actually are unless you actually live up to what you really are, no matter what anybody says no matter what any religious leader says, no matter what a government official says, no matter what somebody's teaching you in school, and I can tell you about the ridiculous stuff that's taught in school now because I'm still in the middle of it and have been for a long time. Um, you You have to develop some kind of allegiance to a higher power. I'm just giving you my opinion. You do not have to agree with it. But, um... There's something that supersedes any other person giving you orders or anything that's written. Because if it doesn't go with where this originated, which is the real source of everything, then you have to ask yourself, what is it exactly that you're going to honor with your life? What we're talking about is a choice that everybody has. And all of us are absolutely devoted to some kind of beliefs in something. Even atheists that I've met have very definite beliefs about how the universe works, how their life works, what their values are. Atheists have values, by the way, in case you're not one and you don't know. Everybody's got some kind of absolute connection there. And my question to you as an individual listener is if it comes down to it, what are you going to give your allegiance to? And what if everybody around you is applying incredible peer pressure? I mean, maybe that they're going to just never talk to you again, or maybe that they will kill you 
in certain military situations, if you don't commit the crime that you're being ordered to commit, they can kill you if it's on a battlefield. And that's happened many times. If you're in certain religions, and, and you know what we're finding out from Dr. Warner is, in Islam, if you try to leave, and we haven't really gotten into this in detail yet, but I've read a lot of his books and the original scriptures as well, and if you try to leave Islam, this is what the first caliph had to deal with a lot, as we talked about at the end of the discussion, you have to be killed. You can't just leave. So if you're in that situation, what is it that you're planning to do? And I think that deserves some really serious thought on your part. Um, that's why we're taking the time to go into this uh, multi-stage discussion. Because there's an ancient law of nature that um, has been there since before any religion was even imagined, or before any philosophy, I think was there since humans began, at least on this planet. And we've talked about it before, and, it, and what it says is that whatever we do to someone or for them comes back to us multiplied. And it doesn't change if you're ordered by a group to commit a crime. That law of nature still wins out. And the spiritual teachers of all different kinds have talked about this. And then some of them, you know, like what we've talked about in, in the, the version of Islam, which was written down originally 150 years after Muhammad's death, and is according to Dr. Warner being followed verbatim by the Islamic terrorists that you're not supposed to talk about anymore. They give a free pass to commit all kinds of atrocities if it's for Allah and if it's against kafirs, which is a very derogatory term. According to Dr. Warner, it's worse than the N-word for uh, so-called black people. And I say so-called because we're all human beings. I don't recognize these big divisions between so-called races. We all started most likely in southern Africa and migrated to different parts of the world where the lack of sun or abundance of sun decided what color we ended up over generations. But that's another story. I think we're all one family. And what I'm asking people to do is, are you strong enough to live your life for that and be an example of it? And I hope as many as possible are. Because right now, our global leaders, global they're not really leaders, they're global rulers and controllers. They're using all these strategies, strategies against us. They want the tremendous overwhelming inflow of people who are willing, because of their religion, to kill everybody who won't go along with them. And they're going to hope that you help them if you're a member of the Muslim faith. That's why we're forbidden for talking about it now. They're also spraying us from high in the atmosphere. They're turning our food into... Uh, forms that cause cancer, infertility, and organ damage and death. That's called GMOs. Government is promoting that as fast as possible. They've got these um, Black Lives Matter people who are basically a black version of the KKK that are advocating racism against non-black people, completely brainwashed by the power structure, doing as much damage as any other group I know of. And then uh, class warfare is being revved up, race war is being revved up, even though, as I said, we're all human beings. Fluoride is, and other poisons, arsenic and thing are, things are being put into water supplies, EMF technology, 
lately, the 5G network is being rolled out that are going to just scramble people's brains and cellular communication completely. FCC is being apparently bribed and blackmailed into passing that quickly. Nuclear power is all over the place, surveillance and mind control. So if we have the strength to not go along with all of it, not just Muslims, I'm talking to everybody. If you don't think you've got this decision to make, you're not looking deep enough. We're going to have to be there for each other. We need economic alternatives as the power structure tries to shut down what's left of the economy, and they do plan to do that. And they plan when the economy dies, you're going to be dependent on government, which will give you GMO food and lots of vaccinations, and you won't be able to think straight at all. You'll not, you will not have a fun life. And we need alternatives now. We need to start taking care of, of each other and, and thinking of each other's welfare now. This has, it's not anything like government welfare that comes with strings attached. This is like real welfare, which is also called charity. And a lot of great religious leaders have advocated it, you know, because we're supposed to take care of each other, not make government do it. Because that's a, that's a trick leading to tyranny. So I want to help you with as much from my side as I can with health alternatives, real health information that's forbidden for which the holistic doctors have been killed. I want to share it with you openly. We're going to continue doing that on our two shows, the Sunday show at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern on Sunday nights and on the Saturday morning show that's live call in to discuss all this stuff. And you really should consider joining us next Saturday, 8 in the morning Pacific, 11 o'clock in the morning Eastern, and sign up for the new, please sign up for the new video subscription service because this is a, a form of money raising that I really don't feel bad about at all. It could build our school if we get this out to everybody. And I'm going to do what I did not want to do and go on video and start making frequent videos, talking to you directly, and sharing the most hardcore stuff that I've got. Everything that I can possibly give you, I'm going to do. And hope that you get the radio shows, the call-in show, and the video service because we need it. We need every tool that we can get to try to not be wiped out and go along with the uh, future that's being cooked up for us. It's going to be in their vision, hell on earth, leading to the destruction of the whole biosphere. That is the bottom line of their plan. I'm sorry, but that's it. And if they want to bring hell on earth, let's do the opposite. Whether you're a Muslim, a non-Muslim, a Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, I don't care, whatever you are. And, you know, as I already told you what I think of race, I think it's an arbitrary division. Let's get committed now to learning fast everything that we can learn to help ourselves and each other because helping yourself and helping others is absolutely inseparable. There's no, no dichotomy between selfishness and serving others. If you really serve yourself, you can help everybody around you even if you don't say a word. So make sure and come back and join us uh, next Saturday at 8 in the morning Pacific for the call-in show. Please sign up for the video thing. I made it as cheap as I could. If we get millions of subscribers, we could build the school right away, which is what I really want to do. And I'll do my part and give you everything I can on the videos and continue what we're doing on the radio. So thanks for holding out for this long show. I hope I didn't bore you with the long discussion. And uh, we'll have Dr. Warner back for another installment in a month or so. And in the meantime, I'll have an announcement up soon about next week's show. Have a great week. Practice what we've been talking about. Learn everything you can. And uh, we appreciate you very much. We'll see you next time. If you'd like to support Lost Arts Radio, one brand new...